It's that time again! Hello, everybody! Happy Friday! Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Rory Sodder and the News. I'm Rory Sodder, your host. I hope you all are doing very well. I hope you've had a fantastic week. I hope you have exciting weekend plans. Uh, big, big media uh, headlines this week. A lot to address, a lot to establish, many great guests in attendance. I'm very excited to introduce my first guest. Uh, he is running for president, and uh, this is a huge deal. I'm a big fan of him. He's got an impressive resume, has lived a hell of a life. What a guy. Bishop Jackson, your first time on the show, my friend. Um, first and foremost, give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you, all that fun jazz. First of all, Roy, thank you so much for having me on. Wow, my bio, in brief, born into a broken home, placed in foster care at 14 months, stayed in foster care until the age of 10, rescued out of foster care by my biological father, who took me out, not only out of foster care, but out of gangs, out of juvenile violence, out of being a, a ne'er-do-well, and frankly, uh, a scofflaw when it came to attending school, and went from being an F student in fifth grade to being an A student in sixth grade, went on, of course, to join the Marine Corps, graduate from college, summa cum laude with Phi Beta Kappa, and then on to Harvard Law School and practiced law for many years, and also joined the ministry. Uh, fell in love with America, uh, with my duty to America as a Marine, and then ultimately fell in love with America as a Christian who really believes that this country is one of the greatest gifts God has ever given to any people. Okay, I'm not hearing anything. I, I I was on mute. Sorry, I, I muted while you were talking because I didn't want any back, okay. I didn't want any background noise. But you know, I was reading a lot of your resume. It's beyond impressive. You went to Harvard Law School once, which is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I also, you know, the the main thing, the the opening question is why why are you running for president? What 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 what, is, what made you decide? You know, this huge huge uh commitment i mean it i imagine you probably did a lot of soul searching you know you uh talk to your family you talk to your friends you know it's a lot of reflecting a lot of meditation probably a lot of prayer but uh, tell the audience you are right rory it is a big decision and i did not make it lightly and you're right a lot of prayer a lot of thought a lot of reflection as you probably know, I was a talk show host for American Family Radio, a job which I loved. I had to give that up in order to do this uh, and other things as well. So it was not an easy decision. But in short, I'm running for president because I profoundly love this country, Rory. I really believe that America, again, offers more hope and opportunity and the ability to fulfill one's God-given potential than any other nation on earth. I just gave you my background. From broken home, poverty, foster care, to candidate for president of the United States, author of three books. Uh, I founded numerous organizations along the way. How? Because this is a country that offers 
freedom and opportunity for anybody who will take advantage of it. And frankly, I believe that that is slipping away. I believe that our fundamental liberties given to us by Almighty God are under profound assault by the left and the Democrat Party, and that somebody's got to stand up and say, look, we are a Judeo-Christian nation. Our rights and our liberties don't come from the Democrat or the Republican Party or from the, from a, even from a vote of the people. We believe that they are granted to us by Almighty God. And the role of government is to secure those rights. And right now, in my view, our government is assaulting those rights, eroding those rights. And there's a big push on the left to take away the fundamental basis of this nation, which is that our creator endowed us with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and no government is allowed to take it away. So I'm here and I'm running to make that case to the American people to say, if we want a future, we've got to come back to that fundamental truth. We've got to come back to family as God ordained it, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, and the bonds of holy matrimony, rather than all this gender-bending insanity that the Democrat Party is pushing on us. And we've got to come back to the notion that every single American has individual liberty and personal responsibility for our own lives, and that America is not a racist nation, it's not a white supremacist nation, it's a nation of individual liberty. And if you will take advantage of the opportunities that are afforded you here, you will find that it's the greatest place on earth to live. And all of this racial division and demagoguery has got to be debunked, and we've got to put an end to it, because frankly, it's a cancer that will kill our country if it's allowed to continue. <laughs> I was on mute again. You, you brought up both parties and, you know, the, the fact that it is very interesting and a lot of people don't understand is this is a uniparty system in D.C., a lot of these people work together. They don't. They don't care about you know us and our everyday needs. I mean, it's all about making deals. I mean, of course, there's some good ones, um, you know, in 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 DC, but it's very limited. I would say maybe one percent of the politicians are good. You know, everybody else sells out, and they go have drinks together and they go party together afterwards. You know, the Democrats and the Republicans. It just seems like a lot of theater to me, man. And they don't, they don't like, they don't get anything done. I mean, they're, they're not, they're not productive. I mean, they, you know, I'm not impressed with Kevin McCarthy. I'm not impressed with the new house leadership. You know, I don't think the house has done much. What are your thoughts? Look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, that is why my first commitment and loyalty is to the constitution of the United States and principle, not to a party. Now, I happen to be a Republican. I'm running for the Republican nomination, but I left the Democrat Party in the early 90, 1980s because the Democrat Party left me. And I say anytime the party I'm affiliated with leaves the principles that I hold dear, as far as I'm concerned, that party has become worthless and I no longer want to be associated with it. And you're right. There are forces in the Republican Party, deep state forces in the Republican Party, what they call moderates or uh, or even some leftists in the Republican Party who really don't want the Republican Party to be a party that focuses on the Constitution, the rule of law, bringing us together as a nation because they're interested in power for themselves. 
not in serving the people. Uh, one of the bases of my candidacy is to say to the American people, most of our politicians, I don't know about the percentage, but I would say most of them have forgotten that we don't exist to serve them. They exist to serve us. We are their masters, their bosses, not the other way around. But they think, and COVID taught this, that there really are lords and masters and that we are supposed to, we, we live to obey them. And, and that's not the way our constitution, our system works. So you are absolutely right. That's why you need an independent voice in this. I think, frankly, I, I don't mind telling you how grateful I am for this opportunity because the mainstream media and even some conservative media are boycotting my candidacy as if I'm really not running for president. And while I know that every candidate in this race is a long shot except Donald Trump, he seems to be poised to win the nomination. That could change. But the fact of the matter is I'm running because I really believe that I'd be the best president among those who are running today uh, because I would go into office with this view. No human being has the ability to do this great job on your own. If you think you can without divine help, if you think you can without a lot of help, you're a fool and you don't need to be anywhere near the White House. I would go in with the ability of saying, God, this is the greatest nation in the history of mankind. No one human being has all the wisdom and ability to, to, to lead this nation. So give me wisdom and, and, and endow me with the ability to serve the American people, not as their boss or their ruler, but as their chief servant and lead this country in the way that will secure a future for our posterity. Wow, man, you're a breath of fresh air. I, I will say that. I mean, you have so many great ideas, so many great policies you want to put into place. You know, I, I, I want to ask you, you know, you brought up Trump and, you know, a lot of people are saying he's going to be the nominee. But I will say this, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced with everything going on with the legal stuff, you know, with um, his failures on Operation Warp Speed. I mean, I, I, you know, the printing of money, the lockdowns. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of flaws there. I mean, I did vote for him twice. I thought he did a lot of great things uh, up until, you know, listening to Fauci and listening to these, you know, elites that don't have our best interest at heart. And I don't, I don't know how he can justify or back that up. I don't know how he can, I, I just don't know how he can, uh, you know, ma make an excuse for that. I mean, that's going to be interesting on the debate stage. Well, look, August 23rd is coming up. Uh, we are working very hard, even though we're the last candidate to jump in the race. We're working very hard to be on that debate stage. We need 40,000 discrete donors in 20 states, a minimum of 200 in each state. It's a, it's, a, it's a high hurdle, but we're working to get there, not putting all our eggs in that basket. We're in this for the long haul. I think more people are going to be more concerned about who the last man standing is, not so much who the first person was to get on the debate stage in August, the year before this whole thing will be concluded. So let me, let me say this, though. I have said to people, because I'm being perfectly honest, I really believe that the country owes a debt of gratitude to Donald Trump for his service in the first four years, for sure. the four years that he served as president. He did some marvelous things. He did. But it. was he perfect? By no stretch of the imagination. And you're right. I, I'm not running to attack other candidates, but you have to make a distinction. And I'll tell you something. I really think Anthony Fauci ought to be in jail. 
Oh, absolutely. I've said he should get the death penalty for crimes against humanity. He's killed more people than any serial killer. If you really want to look at the facts. If you want to look at the facts. And you're right. Donald Trump appointed him. And Donald Trump appointed Christopher Wray. And Christopher Wray has proved to be a disaster for this country. I think he has undermined. I mean, he, as much as James Comey, undermined any confidence that we have in the FBI and the criminal justice system in general. So you're right. I mean, there are some things there. But look, I think every person who serves in that office has a time to serve and then a time to move on. And I think the time has come for Donald Trump to move on and for E.W. Jackson to be the next president. And I will say, Mr. Jackson, that Trump's biggest weakness was the people that he hired, the people he surrounded himself with. He thought everybody was his best friend. And that's not the case. You know, people suck up to him and he automatically thinks that, oh, well, I'll appoint you to this position. I'll give you this job. There were more firings and hirings in that administration than anything I've ever seen. It was almost like a TV show or a movie. I mean, I you can't make this stuff up. And, and the guy well, and, you, and the Jared Kushner's of the world, you know, Trump yeah. is saying Jared Kushner is going to come back. Jared Kushner is the devil as far as I'm concerned. He prevented a lot of the America First agenda. A lot of people can't stand Jared Kushner. They know about his big deal with Saudi Arabia. I mean, I could go on and on about Kushner, scumbag. Yeah, well, look, I, I will say this. You there? A Jackson administration still will put the American people first, not myself. I'm not interested in having right. fights with people over their personal You're slights or bit. their attitudes about me. I'm interested in serving the American people, and I'm going to select people who have that same mindset, adherence to the Constitution. And by the way, no matter which way it cuts, Rory, no matter which way it cuts, in other words, I'm not going to let it have a Justice Department that thinks its rule, its role is to punish liberals or punish leftists. That's not its role. Its role is not to punish conservatives. Its role is to enforce the law. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to make sure that we have a government that does that and that we root out the deep state that has its own agenda, an agenda, frankly, that is completely contrary to the American people. That's why I want to go in there and disperse all these agencies to other parts of the country, particularly these agencies that are serving, the, like in the Interior Department, for example, that are, are hunkered down in the D.C. area in their own little bubble, disconnected from the reality of the lives of the American people. Let them get out into the, into the country and into the countryside and find out how Americans are living uh, and then learn to serve those people instead of looking at them as flyover people who really don't matter, who's, who are so unsophisticated, you know, the deplorables of the world, the people who walk around thumping their Bibles and holding fast to their guns. I mean, all this nonsense that we've heard over the years. It's time to bring this government back to what it's supposed to be, which is our servant. And I have to ask you, you know, I have various questions for you. First off, I mean, it's going to happen that you're going to have to eventually, I believe, you know, especially if Trump goes at you, you're going to have to fire back. Have you thought about that whole scenario and, and what, what you'll, how you'll respond? Well, look, it depends on what he says, doesn't it? Uh, but if the moment comes that he starts to attack me, of course I will respond. Right. I was saying to a friend earlier today, look, I'm an old boxer. You know, right. I boxed for a while growing up and uh, I know how to throw a punch if I have to. Right. But again, 
I, I hope it doesn't degenerate to that. I hope right. we can talk about what's good for America and what America needs right now. I mean, we've got so many crises, crises, Roy. I mean, crises. We got a border crisis. We got a crime crisis. We've got an economic crisis. We got a debt crisis. I mean, we and we've got, frankly, a corruption crisis right now in the White House. We got all kinds of things that we've got to address. And I really don't want to have to waste my time uh, throwing punches back and forth uh, based on personal attacks that anybody might throw at me. No, I hear you. I hear you. And, and what do you think about him and DeSantis continuously going back and forth? I think it's a waste of time on, on both their parts. It's not serving DeSantis well. And look, and let's face it, Donald Trump is the master at the ad hominem. <laughs> you know, he, he, he labels people and, and calls people names. And, you know, in my view, probably the best way to deal with him is to just really take the high road and focus on what matters to the American people. And I think when someone is attacking you and saying things about you, and you, you continue to just demonstrate uh, dignity and focus on what you know matters to people, I think ultimately whoever does that is going to look like the clown and you're going to look like the statesman. No, I hear you. I hear you. And I do have to ask you, you know, I said Operation Warp Speed was his biggest downfall and his demise and his presidency with the law and along with the lockdowns and the printing money. What do you think his biggest mistake was Trump? What do you like if you had to analyze everything, what do you think he did the most wrong? Look, in my view, there are two, two, and I've alluded to them already. I think that Anthony Fauci was his biggest mistake. I think that, look, we don't know yet what the end results of this shot are going to be. But what we do know is we got young athletes who took that shot, dropping dead, having heart attacks all over this country. We got a million people dead. I remember my wife and I refused to have the, the, the shot. We just refused. And we did have COVID, but oh. we've been healthy ever since. We have yeah. relatives who got the shot and they got sick three and four times. Right, right. This, this is a travesty uh, on the American yeah. people. And you're right. I think that Anthony Fauci has committed a crime against humanity, not to mention that he probably financed the engineering of this thing that ended up attacking the American people. And look, I don't think a president who is presiding at that time can avoid accountability for what took place there. And I think that that was his biggest mistake. Bishop, I have to ask you, um, what do you think of Kennedy? You know, obviously he, uh, I, I, you know, I've never voted Democrat in my life, Bishop. Um, but about eight, about 80% of his policies are conservative. And I, I've said on, on my show several times, he could bit bring the Democratic Party back to sanity. He could bring them back to a competitive, competitive playing field because, I mean, you know, his uncle, JFK, let's face it, if he was alive today, he would be on your side. He, he would definitely be more of a conservative and he would call the Democratic Party a bunch of lunatics. You know, never forget the quote. Do uh, what, what is it again? Um, don't not what your country, not what your country right. can do for you, but what you can do for your country. There you and go. He a, and he was a pro-life Catholic Democrat. The only thing that bothers me about Robert Kennedy is that he's pro-choice. I can't. That's that's a a big yeah. enough policy where I just can't. I can't accept that. I'm so I'm so pro-life. 
you know, I'm Catholic. I, I just, I can't, I can't go along with the abortion scenario, but everything else, I mean, he sounds like a Republican. Well, Rory, I, I am pro-life as well. And you're right. That's a profound disagreement I had with Robert Kennedy. By the way, I read his book, The Real Anthony Fauci. Yeah. And I think he nailed it. I mean, I think he, he really unveils who Anthony Fauci really is and demonstrates Anthony Fauci to be a self-seeking, I mean, the guy with posters of himself all over his house. I mean, proves, shows him to be a self-seeking monster who could care less about the lives of other people, who presided like a dictator over our medical system, uh, using grant money to basically control people and threaten people and keep people in line. Uh, so he nails it in that regard. By the way, here's another thing about his uncle that everybody needs to remember. I think his uncle would not only call the Democrat Party lunatics, he would call them communists because yeah. he was a an avid anti-communist. Right. And so, I, look, I, I, I like a lot about the guy too, but you're right. I cannot get over the hurdle uh, that he is anti-life. And by the way, one of my principles as a candidate that I'm advancing is a constitutional amendment that I would introduce as president of the United States that would define life as beginning and, and personhood as beginning at conception and constitutionally protect the lives of unborn children once and for all. I think that's where we've got to go and just put an end to this carnage of killing these unborn babies by the millions. No, I agree. I agree. And, and I mean, would you go as far as banning abortion federally? I mean, would you take that approach? That's what the a constitutional amendment would mean, that no abortion is legal with one exception, and that is where the life, the physical life of the mother is at stake. Now, I'm not talking about you know, her psychological or emotional state where the physical life of the mother is at stake, where, where doctors say, we cannot save the baby and save the mother's life as well. That is one of those circumstances where I would say, okay, government's hands off. Somebody is probably going to die in this situation and you have to leave it to the mother and her husband, uh, if there's a husband involved, to, to decide how they're going to proceed. But, but no exceptions for rape, no exceptions for incest, because the basic principle, Roy, is that the baby didn't do anything wrong. Right. Why do you kill the baby? Because a human being did something wrong. Um, James Robinson, one of the most famous evangelists in our country's history, was the product of rape. And he's now blessing and encouraging and helping people all over the world through his program, Life Today. So please, let's stop killing the innocent because the guilty have done something wrong. Absolutely. No, 100% true. And what, what I want to ask you, you know, in regards to day one, when you get into office, what would be your three main policies that you would put forth? Well, frankly, for me, the number one policy is to fire Christopher Ray and to clean out the Justice Department. Because I've said you've got two, two things in this country that could completely undermine our constitutional republic and, and turn us into a nation of anarchy and chaos. One is the criminal justice system. When the, when the American people believe that the criminal justice system no longer serves us, but is now punishing people based on their ideology. In other words, they don't like where you stand on issues, so now they're coming after you and going to try to put you in jail. That's not a constitutional republic. That is a banana republic. 
And I think that Christopher Wray has allowed the FBI to degenerate into an institution of politics. And I would, I would get rid of him and I would get rid of the Justice Department immediately. Um, I would also, frankly, turn the Education Department, which I'd like to get rid of in general, yeah. into an educational choice institution that would facilitate school choice for parents across this nation so that parents no longer are captive to schools that want to indoctrinate their children instead of educate them. Uh, and I would make it a, the mission of my presidency to create universal school choice so that every child born in this country has the opportunity to go to any school that their parents choose to send them to rather than being locked in government schools that are not teaching them the basics that they need to live and yet indoctrinating them into a lot of bizarre sexual ideas and racial ideas that they don't need to live. In fact, that only hurt them and hurt the country. I hear you. I 100% I, I hear you. And I will say this that the Department of Education needs to be abolished, like you just said. I mean, it's causing so many problems in our school system. You know, it's turned into a huge cronyism monopoly. Oh, I agree. And, and look, first of all, education is a local matter. But at this point, we need to redefine what public education is anyway. Public education ought to mean any school any school and, and taxpayer dollars ought to support the decisions of the parents as opposed to telling the parents, well, we're going to blackmail you. And so now we've got these dollars, but they can only be spent a certain way. You have to send your children to school. And unless you send them to this school, we're going to punish you. We're going to, we're going to come down on you. We're, we, you've, you've got to do this or you, or you're going to end up paying twice, paying your real estate taxes and paying for your child's education. I think it's just time to end that. You know, there was a time when we had a moral and spiritual and social contract and consensus in this country. The, the left has destroyed that. I mean, they've broken that down. I mean, imagine lecturing parents and telling them that they're bad parents because they won't let a prepubescent child be injected with hormones and won't let their teenager have their breast cut off or their genitalia cut off because some so-called expert tells them that this is what you've got to do to save the life of the child. And when a parent says, no, I'm not letting that decision be made for my child. They can make that decision as an adult. Yes, but I'm not letting that happen. Oh, you're a bad parent. We're going to take that child away from you because you don't know what you're doing. I mean, that's what we've come to. And the, frankly, the, the, the government schools have become a Petri dish for this kind of radical intervention and and uh, taking over the authority that should belong in the hands of parents. So, so yeah, it, it's something's got to be done. If I can use the education department to facilitate that, I would do that. Otherwise, it just needs to be gotten rid of altogether. And Bishop, you know, with what's going on in these various states, like for instance, in California, if a child wants to transition, and their parents decline, but the therapist or the doctor suggests it and recommends it, then the parents can be punished and the kids can be taken away from the parents. As president, what would you do about stuff like that? Because, I mean, this is as evil as it gets. And they want to legalize, they're starting to try to legalize pedophilia. I mean, look at California. They're trying to make uh, child sex trafficking a minor felony. They're, they're trying to say that, having sex with a minor should be 
put down to a misdemeanor. I mean, this is absolutely atrocious. Well, and, and Roy, look at the left's response to the sound of freedom. It's, it's as if this movie was represented some kind of weird, radical idea. The movie promotes the idea that we need to protect children from being sex trafficked. And the left has been excoriating the movie and condemning it as if it says something bizarre. I mean, the, look, I think, frankly, in many ways, evil has completely taken over the left and the Democrat Party. Uh, the ideology is evil anyway, because it's an ideology based upon collective imposition rather than individual liberty. So that in itself is evil. But this has gone beyond the pale. I mean, they, they have gone to places where nobody imagined we would ever go. You ask me, what would I do? Here's what the Justice Department ought to be doing. It ought to be focused on defending the civil rights of the American people. And to me, that is a violation of the civil rights of parents when a state decides it's going to pass laws that in, uh, inject the state into the private domain of families and start dictating to families life-changing, life-altering decisions for their children that can never be undone. I think the Justice Department needs to step in and say, we're going to bring the full weight of the federal government to bear in behalf of those parents who are standing up and saying, wait a minute, I get to make the final decisions on what happens to my child, not the state. Uh, and I think that there's a case to be made for violation of the parent of the civil rights of parents when these states go in that direction. And I would be talking to my attorney general about legal theories that ought to be brought to bear to defend those parental rights. Yeah, and I do have to add, I do have to ask you, Bishop, how do you think we got to this point? I mean, the slippery slope was legalizing gay marriage and then it became you know other things you know the transgender stuff and now pedophilia i mean it it's always been a slippery slope i knew once they legalized gay marriage they were going to keep pushing and pushing because you give these people an inch they'll take a mile and they want to see how far they can go and what they can get away with well look once you allow government to play god where does it all end and see, I think this began in the 60s when, when Lyndon Johnson, the Democrat Party, decided that government could solve everything. It great, could solve the, about the great society that he created. There you go. There you go. Taking black families out of the home, the single mother rate skyrocketing. Yep. It's terrible. Because if yep. we look at the old days, there were mostly, in the old days, blacks were Republicans. The, the government intervention, decimated Douglas, for example, is, is an example. Go ahead. Sorry. No, government intervention has decimated the family. We've gone from Ronald Reagan saying, uh, beware when somebody arrives saying, I'm the government and we're here to help. Now it's I'm the government. We're here to teach your children, indoctrinate your children. We're here to abort your babies. We're here to, to, to get men out of the home and and replace that with government subsidies. I'm the government. We're here to help. How's that working out for us? It has been a disaster. And I think that's the first step. Instead of leaning on one another and leaning on God and leaning on private institutions and private and personal responsibility, you start leaning on government. It then becomes God, which is exactly the way they're using it now. They're using government to replace God and, and assuming, contrary to the Constitution, that whatever good idea some weirdo has who happens to be in office, uh, that ought to be implemented and everybody ought to go along with it. I mean, that that is a 
complete subversion of the very nature of our system, was, was, which was built to limit the power of government, not expand it. So I think that once government steps in, once we start using government as the answer to everything, this is where you end up. Then you get sexual orientation. Then you get gay marriage. Now you got transgenderism. And you're right. They're moving headlong toward pedophilia. Not, well, forgive me, not pedophiles, MAPs, MAPs, minor attracted persons, because person, yeah. you can't stigmatize pedophilia. It's insane. That's where we are. It's absolutely insane. And you know what else I was going to bring up? If you look at the inner cities, if you look at what they care about, they care about guns, money, and God. Most of these people in the inner cities have a, have a relationship with God. They have faith. They love money. They love guns. That sounds pretty conservative to me. I'm a little confused why they vote Democrat because the conservatives are the ones that are really fighting for what they like, what they really like. You are absolutely right, Roy. But but here's why. I mean, even though never, even though the inner cities they're using in a lot of ways the guns for the wrong reasons, they still love their guns. You know. Well, law, yeah, law-abiding citizens. So in most in most cities can't get them. It's the right. criminals who have them. Right. But look, here, here's the bait and switch that's been done. The Democrat Party has convinced the black community that even though all the Democrat Party uh, uh, creates is poverty crime, poor education, absolutely decimated communities with all the riots and the looting that they facilitate, and by the way, that they finance, but they convince them that, you know, your circumstances are all the fault of racism. And racism comes from Republicans and it comes from conservatives. And just vote for us because we're the ones who are going to take care of you. I mean, it is a grand lie and, and frankly, part of my candidacy is to do what Barack Obama did not do, which is to go into these communities and offer them an alternative vision that says, you don't have to live under these circumstances. There is a way out, and I'm proof positive of that based on my own life. Look, I'm reaching out right now to Ice Cube. I don't agree with any of Ice Cube's rap music, but right. Ice Cube is going around the country saying to the black community, the Democrat Party has done nothing for you. Right. They're not helping you. Right. They're, 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 in fact, he's saying all they're doing is stirring up racial strife, but that's not in any way improving life for anybody. I'm going to be the candidate that goes into these communities. I've already started it. Let me say we've got my nonprofit has a program called the Forgotten Children Project, which points out 355 innocent children, all but three of them black have been murdered in the inner cities since the defund and dismantle the police movement began. This is causing decimation of the black community, mass murders all over the place, much worse than it's ever been. And the Democrat party can take credit for it. And I'm going to these communities and tell, telling people, if you really want to live life, you, will, you really want to have a better life, the best thing you could do is stop voting for these people who are really holding you in bondage, not liberating you. And what areas are you are you going into? I'm sure it's a lot of different parts of the country, right? Into the inner cities. Well, in fact, I'm scheduled to be in Chicago. I think um, in August. Right. I've, in fact, I've already been to Chicago twice. Yeah. We had a conference in Chicago. My organization did, and and you know, it's amazing the response we got from people in the inner city. They're not hearing this message, but when they hear it, they gravitate to it. Uh, when we did when we did our, our announcement 
I went into the inner city of Richmond, into Mosby Court, and did a press conference there about the Forgotten Children Project and the number of children have been murdered who have been murdered in our area. I mean, one mother and her three-month-old daughter sitting out on the steps of their home on a lovely spring day, and a bunch of thugs decide they're going to have a shootout, shot the mother and her three-month-old daughter dead on the spot. And, and what do you hear Black Lives Matter saying? What do you hear the Democrat Party saying? What, nothing, because unless a black person is involved with an incident involving the police or something that they can attribute to racism, they simply don't care. And in the meantime, black people are dying like flies in these communities and nobody is doing anything about it. And I, as president, you can rest assured, would do something about it. What what would what would you put into place? You know, obviously, I know you have a lot of ideas in terms of legislation and stuff like that. And I imagine this is one of your top priorities, uh, you know, within the first, I would say, month or two of your administration. How oh, would yes. you how would you go about, you know, repairing and revamping and trying to really make these inner cities better and livable and and create, you know, prosperity and peace? Well, first of all, I would commence immediately to make as part of my presidency a tour throughout the inner cities of this country. I would go into these places, places where most presidents don't want to go and their staffs right. don't want them to go and the Secret Service doesn't want them to go. <laughs> right. I'm, going. I'm going because somebody's got to talk to these young guys about the baby mama culture yes. and about thinking that you it makes you a man when you can impregnate a woman but not take care of that baby or it right. makes you a man when you can shoot somebody because you think they dissed you that's not being a man that's being an animal and somebody's got to talk straight to these kids and as a guy who grew up part of my life on the streets and was part of a gang i can speak straight to them and that's number one number two i have a program that takes it in an entirely different direction the government can't solve these problems because the government can't go in and say the things that need to be said. So what I would do is I would begin to marshal all these private sector resources and say, if you really care about the inner city, if you really care about poor people, let's do something that actually makes a difference. Get out there, stop depending on the government, get out there, create programs to help rebuild families and strengthen family and, and teach family among these young people. Provide educational choice, provide job training so that these young people can learn job skills and get in there and actually teach them right from wrong. I mean, somebody has got to go into these communities, Roy, and say, I don't care what anybody says to you. Oprah Winfrey, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, uh, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, when you go into a store and take things that don't belong to you, you are a thief. You are not a revolutionary, you're not a liberator, you are a thief. And no man with a single uh, iota of honor does that. You don't take from others what belongs to them. You go out and earn what you want for yourself and that way you can have it with pride and with dignity. And go in there and talk about the importance of rebuilding families and the, re the importance of education again. Look, you may not be in a school that has the very best education, but what are you making of it? You don't need a teacher to get you to read. You don't need a teacher to get you to study. You can do a lot of things on your own if you want to better yourself, as opposed to teaching 
treating education like it's irrelevant because you're too busy trying to live the street life, which is gonna get you killed early or in jail early or dead from a drug overdose early. I mean, these are the kinds of things, Roy, that have got to be said in these communities. And frankly, I don't see anybody else running for president who can or will go into these communities and say what I'm, I'm saying now because they haven't lived it and I have. Yeah, and you brought up a bunch of different things just now. Obviously, we talked about the shootings and those are a big issue. But you also brought up the shoplifting and you, you brought up all this stuff. And I mean, these people are going into mom and pop's businesses. They're emptying the shelves. They're not getting prosecuted and they're making a living off of shoplifting. You can you can make a living off shoplifting in California as long as you don't steal something that's that's more than a thousand dollars. So it's absolutely you don't get prosecuted. They just they can't stop you. They just let you walk out the door. It's it's bad. It's really bad. Well, look, the other thing I would do, I would call on my Justice Department to do an investigation to what extent this stuff is based upon a conspiracy to deprive the American people of life, liberty, and property, uh, and of their civil rights. I think these George Soros prosecutors oh, are, yeah. are, are getting people killed. They're okay. getting people's property destroyed. And I think they're doing it intentionally because they want to destabilize our country. They, they, want, they want chaos, they want anarchy. And, and this leads to a deprivation of the civil liberties of the American people. And I think that is something that the Justice Department ought to look into. I would be looking at George Soros very, very hard to see exactly what he, did George Soros actually finance these riots that were taking place? Because if he did, then George Soros is guilty of incitement to riot and ought to be held accountable for it. And see here again, I don't think anybody wants to go there. Nobody wants to bring up his name because when you do, they accuse you of anti-Semitism. I don't care what his ethnic or religious background is. I care what the man is doing as a disservice to, and that is destructive of our country. And I intend to put a stop to it. No, I love it. I got, I got, I got a few more questions for you. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Everybody stay with us. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell and I'm excited to announce my new product, my coffee. I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, mystore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence and this family owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever gonna have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen, use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, 
Plus, it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. The my pillow guy. And you're looking good. I'm still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever. My pillow 2.0. Wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took my pillow's patented bill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented my pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, MyPillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that MyPillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side, well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code and for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit mypillow.com. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back with Bishop Jackson. So, Bishop, I have to ask you, you were you were in a gang many years ago. Kind of explain that. That's very interesting. So I was I, I didn't catch that. You said you were in a gang when you were younger. Explain oh, that. Oh, yes. Yes, I was. How that all, how that all went I joined, I joined a gang. We call, it had two names. It was the Pedal Street Gang. We called it the Eagles as well. 
All the local guys on our street were part of it. We had gang fights with the Lamokin Street gang, the guys one who lived one block over got to the point where they couldn't come on our street and we couldn't come on theirs. We had some very vicious fights. Uh, we were committing petty crimes, robbing milk trucks and, and stealing stuff off people's porches, uh, wandering around during the day when we should have been in school. So, And we were admiring the guys who had been to the penitentiary, who had committed serious enough crimes to get them locked up. That, that's, that's the way we wanted to be because those are the guys who were respected and those are the guys who everybody stepped aside when they walked down the street. I mean, it was really pathological. So I have a, I have a great deal of understanding of what these inner city kids are matriculated and enculturated into. But I know somebody's got to challenge that for them, just like my dad challenged that for me. And when you were in these gangs, like, did you see some horrific things go down? Well, look, thank God at that point, we weren't fighting with guns or knives. There were some very, very vicious fights that happened. And, and I did see some pretty bad things happen. A friend of mine, I didn't see this, but a friend of mine, Herman Cooper, uh, went to a party, got into a beef with another friend named Rabbit, stabbed Rabbit to death, and went away for a very long time. So, uh, yeah, some some terrible things happened as part of that lifestyle. And many of the people that I hung with ended up in jail or dead. So, I, I believe me, I understand that track, but I also know that there's a way out of it because it wasn't racism that had us on that track. It was family breakdown and and other issues uh, that were peer pressure and other issues that were leading us down the wrong road. Uh, and as soon as I got off that road, my life changed dramatically. Amazing, man. Amazing. And how long were you in that gang for? Well, I was only 10 years old when I was in the gang. So I, oh, we wow. probably started it about a year younger. I mean, and people are marvel. Say, wait, wait, are you were in a gang at like nine years old? Yeah, I was. I was because that was just the culture that I was growing up in, and my foster parents, frankly, couldn't control me, and that's why my life changed so dramatically. Because when my father stepped in at the age of ten years old, he literally, Roy, took me off the street, hanging out with my gang, put me in his car, took me to the foster home and told them, I'm taking my son with me. And my foster mother who had taken care of me since I was 14 months old, became hysterical with tears. But my father said to her, if I don't take my son, we're gonna lose him to the streets. And he was absolutely right. And in that moment, my life changed dramatically for the better. And, and how, what got you into it? Like, did you have a friend that kind of introduced you to this sort of environment or how did that all go down? It, it was it was kind of in the air. Um, probably the thing that precipitated it was others around us had formed gangs and we were hanging out together and finally decided that we were going to have our own gang. We were going to formalize. And so, yeah. like I said, then we created the Eagles. I remember... You're taking me way back, Roy. But I remember drawing the eagle on the backs of the jackets of our gang. Uh, you know, we all went and found jackets and we drew eagles on the back of them. And so the Pedal Street gang, the eagles, uh, then once we became a gang, then we started talking about what we were going to do to people who lived around us. The guy I mentioned who killed somebody, he moved into a street about a block from us. And the first time he landed on our street, he got a beat down. Because we said, you don't, you, you can't come on our street without our permission. So, I mean, that's how 
crazy it was at such an early age. Yeah. And what area of the country was this in? This was in Chester, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. Um, and Chester was an industrial town, um, which had a very, very rough side of it. I lived on Third Street, and Third Street was really the heart of the ghetto. Wow, man. And then once you got out of that gang, then your whole life kind of turned around and you well, did things once much my father took me out of foster care, he laid down the law, Rory. And this is what we need. That's why I say one of my platforms is we've got to talk about rebuilding families because these kids need a father in the home to teach them right from wrong. My father laid down the law. You will not hang out with those gangs. You will not be further from this house than you can hear my voice in earshot. You will study. You will show respect to police officers and, and other people in authority. I mean, it was really quite clear. And I found out he was prepared to enforce those rules. I knew my father loved me, but I also knew that my father meant what he said. And believe me, once I began to comply, oh, man, what a different life I had walked into. I mean, believe it or not, the kid who almost failed fifth grade, I actually came in second in the Latin award in ninth grade, the Latin award. So, you know, it just goes to show it's not race that's the issue. It's guidance, it's support, it's vision, it's, it's teaching, it's discipline that these kids need. And revamping the school system, well, no, the revamping and fixing the foster care system, I think is a big priority. There's a lot of kids in foster care that are getting abused left and right, and the government does nothing about it, and it's just awful. Well, look, you got to go how, on how do we solve tax that problem because it's, it's ongoing. It just continues and continues. Of course. And, and look, my experience in foster care had its moments. It wasn't an ongoing situation of abuse, but I was a bitter, angry kid who didn't understand why I couldn't be with my own mother and father. And therefore my foster parents simply could not control me. When they tried, I would run away. I, I, I was just a problem. Foster care can be an answer when you've got the right people running it. And I, I had fairly I've had a wonderful foster mother, by the way. I named my middle daughter after my foster mother. Oh, wow. But, but you're right. We've got to rebuild the traditional family. And then we've got to also lay down the law with regard to foster care. Because if you're going to take on that responsibility, A, you better know exactly what you're getting into, be properly trained to do it. And B, if you abuse those children, you ought to be locked up. And I, I got to ask you, you know, I want to I shift topics just a little bit. Um, you know, I saw here, um, this is, I mean, you've had quite the career. Like I said, um, you won the Republican, you were the Republican party nominee for Lieutenant governor of Virginia in 2013. Talk about that for a second. Well, nobody expected that to happen. That's for sure. Um, I went into the convention. It sounds like you're the type of guy that always overcomes the odds. Like you, <laughs> you just know how to prevail, man. You always get to the finish line. It seems like, you know, Rory, you, you put your finger on something. That's kind of been the theme of my life. People put chat, put challenges in front of me and say, well, you'll never do that. And I say, Oh really? Well then let's see about that. That just like what I'm, Right now, people are telling me, you, you, you're a long shot. Well, we'll we'll see. But I'll tell you one thing, I'm going to put my all into it. Um, and so, yeah, 
I, I have lived a life in which various challenges have been put in front of me and, and I've just been unwilling to yield and say, well, I can't do that. When I was trying to go to Harvard Law School, I had very well-meaning liberal professors say to me, don't apply to Harvard Law School because black people don't do well on the standardized tests and you won't get into Harvard Law School, even though you're a straight A student because you, black people don't do well on the standardized tests. I said, well, we'll just see about that. I went and practiced for the LSAT and did very well. And then when I graduated from law school, they said black people don't do well on standardized tests that you probably won't pass the bar exam this first time. I passed two bar exams at the same time, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, because I wasn't sure where I was going to land. So I took two bar exams instead of one and passed them both first time. So, but, but here again, these are all of the canards and the stereotypes that people have that they use to, to, to limit people's ability and, and energy and drive and determination and ambition. And that's the message I want to take to the entire country. We got a lot. Stop letting ourselves be demoralized, regardless of the color of our skin, and start reaching for the stars again as a nation and seeing ourselves as a shining city on a hill. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I also see here you were the Republican nominee for the United States Senate in Virginia in 2012 and 2018. Yeah, those were quixotic adventures. Uh, first time I jumped into it. Uh, but I always found this. Whether you're a long shot or not, the ability to impact people with a message has a value of its own. I can tell you, I was at an event last night and I was amazed at the people who came up to about 100 people there. The number of people came up to me and said, I'm going to vote for you. I'm going to support you because you're saying things that I agree with, and I don't hear the other candidates saying that. So I'm going to continue to press ahead and defy the odds. I love it. I love it. And, you know, I'm also seeing here that you are the head pastor at Exodus Faith Ministries located in uh, Ch Chesapeake, Virginia. And you are the Chesapeake, Virginia. It's actually, it's actually the call church uh, yeah. in Chesapeake, Virginia. Um, and yes, I am. I am the senior pastor there. And it. every Sunday I'm not traveling somewhere right now. Of course, I'm campaigning. Right. But every Sunday I'm not traveling. I'm there preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, yes, I am a full time pastor and the only pastor in the race. And it says you're also the founder of Staying True to America's National Destiny, a Christian political organization. Well, Stand is an organization <clears throat> that was designed to bring Americans together across racial and cultural lines, and that it was inspired in my heart after Barack Obama was elected president. And I was anticipating that he was going to stoke a lot of racial division. I was not disappointed, unfortunately. Uh, and so Stan was meant to bring people together. And we got a number of projects, including getting Americans to work together on this problem of inner city violence uh, and the breakdown of the family and the lack of educational choice that spurs uh, these people having a dead end lives. Uh, so we, we are committed. And while the Democrat Party and the left and Black Lives Matter are busy trying to divide us and separate us and segregate us, my organization is dedicated to bringing us together as one nation under God, because that's the only way we're going to be indivisible with liberty and justice for all. 
I love it, Bishop. And, and you have, I'm still reading your resume. You're also in the military for a while. Explain that kind of tell us. Oh yeah. Name. I was in, I was in the United States Marine Corps. Hoorah. Semper Fi to all my fellow jarheads out there. But yes, service. I spent three years in the Corps. I was an air radar technician during the Vietnam era. Thought I was going to Vietnam, but I joined in 1970 and, um, and going into combat that never came, even though I was trained on a radar that was intended to be a combat ready radar that you moved with through the bush to guide airplanes to do bomb dropping beyond where um, ground to air missiles could hit them. Uh, that never happened. But yes, I served three years in the Marine Corps. I went in a boy and came out a man. I'm grateful to God for the service I was able to render my country as a United States Marine. In fact, I tell people all the time, I took an oath in August of 1970 to the Constitution of the United States that I would preserve, protect, and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And that oath never had an expiration date. I love it. I love it. And when you went to Harvard Law School, what was that experience like? I mean, obviously, times have changed. The, the dynamics, the curriculum, the environment when you were there was probably way different. It wasn't as liberal as it is now, but it was definitely liberal. And uh, I'll tell you, I had a conversion experience in the middle of law school, which really opened my eyes and completely changed my approach and my attitude uh, about law school. But I will say this, uh, the first thing I noticed when I went to law school is that for the first time in my academic life, because I'd always done well academically after my father took custody of me, I was among a bunch of ac academic achievers, and it really challenged me to step up. It really challenged me to realize, you know, now the question is, you've competed where you are always the standout. Now can you compete where you're not necessarily the academic standout? You got a bunch of standouts. And I found that when I put my head into my books and really disciplined myself, uh, I could compete at any level. Kind of emblematic of what I'm doing right now. I, I believe that I can compete with any candidate on the rostrum for president of the United States and appeal to the American people um, and, and convince many Americans that I'm the best person for the job. And I mean, I'll tell you what, man, getting into Harvard Law School, I mean, that's like, that's once in a lifetime. I mean, you, you must have had uh, unbelievable grades. <laughs> well, as I said, I graduated summa cum laude with a Phi Beta Kappa award. Now, that means that's pretty tall grass academically. So I did very well. And I was a philosophy major. Yeah, which meant I had to take logic and and study uh, Aristotle and and Plato and Socrates and and Descartes and Kierkegaard and and uh, and, and, and 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 any number of others uh, right. that we could name, uh, which wasn't easy or light reading, but it really prepared me for a study of the law. What what do you think? Um, and Harvard was involved with this lately, and it's been a big scandal. The affirmative action nonsense. Um, your thoughts on that, your take. I, I'll tell you, Rory, I've said affirmative action may have been well-intentioned, but it has been a disaster on two levels. Number one, it's only served 
to denigrate people who achieve and call into question their achievements. You know, you can give people a position, but you can't, you don't give them respect as a professional. They earn that. They earn that by the demonstration of competence and character. And to me, affirmative action really took that away from many people, which is why I've opposed it as a means of, of lowering standards in order to get more people in based upon their background. I have to tell you, Roy, I resent the idea that if a white guy takes a test and I take a test, I need to be given a lower standard because after all, I'm black and, and I can't achieve the same standard he achieves. I mean, people ought to resent that, but that's what affirmative action has essentially become. It's a way of denigrating the, the abilities of people based upon the color of their skin. And when you buy into that, all you do is raise questions forever about, well, did you did you really do what others were required to do? Or were you given special treatment? And therefore, can I really trust your competence at the same level that I can trust the competence of someone else? So that's one of its terrible side effects. But the other is that it just serves to divide us as a nation. Black against white, against Asian, against Hispanic. It, it's, it's, it's a terrible social construct to tribalize people by saying, well, certain people will get certain treatment and others won't get that treatment based upon the color of their skin. I resent that. I hate that. And as president of the United States, let me just tell you one of the things I would do. You asked me, what would I do in my first day in office? I would close every office of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the government, and that includes the military, every single one of them would be gone on day one, and people would be reassigned to other substantive duties to do for the government, as opposed to using these things to just really just sell racial and leftist ideology. That's all they're, that's all they're doing, selling racial and leftist ideology and dividing and tribalizing our country. I would stop them the moment I take office. I hear you. No, I hear you. And, and you used to be a Democrat. Like what? Because everybody has obviously a moment where they open their eyes and they realize their surroundings and the actual reality of what's going on. But what was that moment? Like what really triggered it? What really, you know, was the breaking point where you're saying to yourself, I can't be a part of this Democratic Party anymore? Well, you know, call it a person. And you know that person was Barney Frank. Because uh -oh. at the time I was in Massachusetts, Barney Frank was a top leader. He might have even been the chairman of the Massachusetts Democrat Committee at the time. Yeah. I saw that he was an open homosexual. I saw that he was trying to lower the age of consent for sex between adults and women. I saw they had affirmative action, not only for blacks, but for, for gays and I saw that they were promote, pushing abortion hard. I saw that government was the answer for everything. And you know, it's not only I, but my wife and I both at the same time came to the conviction, you know, we don't belong with these people because we don't see eye to eye with them. And I frankly, I had a crisis of conscience. And then we heard Ronald Reagan and it was all over. Because when Ronald Reagan began to speak and we heard him, we thought, we agree with him, not them. <laughs> and so we immediately, uh, as soon as we realized where we were, 
we did some soul searching because we knew it was going to be difficult in terms of the reaction of some people. Uh, but we resigned from the Democrat Party and never looked back. And to, to show you how bad it was, we actually had two people who we thought were friends who were prepared to be the godparents for our youngest daughter. When they found out that we left the Democrat Party and became Republicans, they said they didn't want to be godparents to the child of Republicans. That's the truth. Jesus. And I have to ask you, have you spent a lot of time around a lot of these old school politicians? You know, you brought up Reagan, you, you brought up various names. Have you spent time around these people? Well, I didn't know Ronald Reagan personally, but I've certainly spent a lot of time around uh, politics and around politicians, met and talked to a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, at one point, about 10 years ago, we did a big confab uh, at the Capitol and had many of the most prominent conservative congressional leaders come and speak. Um, people like um, uh, uh, Michelle Bachman and, and, uh, and Alan West and, and, and any number of others, Comer and, and, uh, and so forth. We had come and speak throughout the day to our group. Our, this was our nonprofit group about the state of the country and where we needed to go. So I spent a lot of times around political types. And look, I've met a lot of people that I know and admire. I've met some that I thought you shouldn't be allowed anywhere near power because as a, as a, a, a close friend of mine once said, politics can attract two different kinds of people. People who want to do something, they're committed to a cause. They really want to make an impact. And people who want to be somebody they're not committed to anybody or anything except themselves. Uh, and I've met, I've met some people on, from both sides of that, some people who I just admire greatly. And then I've met some people who I thought, you don't need to be anywhere near power because you're only in this for yourself. That's what the Biden administration represents, frankly. No, no you're absolutely right. Um, and, and in 2018, didn't Trump endorse you when you were, when you were the nominee? No, no, no. The president, former President Trump did not endorse me, uh, but he, tell fact, me that story he, he because you were the nominee. Mine, how, 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 does that feelings about that. how does that work though? You're the nominee. Why wouldn't he endorse you? No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't the Senate nominee. I wasn't the Senate nominee. Uh, I was running for the nomination for Senate back in 2018. Oh. So, but a friend of mine won the nomination. I ran because I really thought he would not win the general election. And unfortunately, I proved to be right. Yeah. And you brought up this Biden administration a second ago. Don't you think this is by far the most corrupt administration ever? I mean, it, it's worse than Obama. And Obama was was the worst. Or, or maybe Jimmy Carter was the worst. But this guy really, I think, at this point, takes the cake. Roy, I'm not exaggerating when I say I think I've read... If not every, I, I can't think of a single presidential biography that I have not read. I, I have never seen anything like what we're seeing with this administration. I mean, the, the open flouting of the Constitution of the United States, um, the, 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 the promotion of lawlessness, the, the self-dealing of this family, uh, the efforts to use the Justice Department as a political tool to punish one's enemies, Again, acting like a banana republic instead of a constitutional republic. I, I've never seen anything like this. And that's why we have got to make sure that this administration that's in power now does not get to return, that they are turned out of office. Because as far as I'm concerned, 
another four years, and I don't know that we'll have a country by the time they're done. Because as far as I'm concerned, and no one else will say this, but somebody needs to, we may have a president who has committed treason against this country and submitted the authority of the presidency to communist China. That's how bad it gets. Now, there's still a lot of evidence to be brought in, but I'll tell you what, when you see a family that has no business, has no money, suddenly they're worth millions of dollars and you see millions flowing from foreign countries, much of which is coming from communist China, you, you have to wonder, is this really a person who is serving us or is this a person who is actually serving our enemy? No, absolutely. No, I, I, I agree. And speaking of China and Russia and all these other countries, you know, China and Russia have a big alliance right now, which is terrifying. I think it's one of the biggest threats we face. And what are your thoughts on this Ukraine-Russia war? How would you end it? How would you deal with it? How would you go about this nonsense? Because, I mean, we're just sending them money left and right. It is such a joke. Ru Russia is destroying them. But the mainstream media wants people to believe that Ukraine is prevailing and Ukraine is badly suffering in reality. Yeah, you, Ukraine is not Ukraine is not prevailing uh, and they're not going to prevail. No. Look, first of all, I, I cannot justify spending billions of dollars to secure the borders of Ukraine when America's borders are wide open. Uh, I, I don't see how that's in the best interest of our country. Now, when I become president, I want to talk to, I've got a foreign policy expert I'm working with right now who's advising me on this. When I become president, I want to talk to foreign policy experts because here's the unanswered question. We should only be using our resources to support our allies or in this case, where Ukraine is not really strictly an ally, but wants to become part of NATO, where the vital interests of the United States of America are at stake. I haven't heard anybody make the case that they are. Now, I can see that as a nation contiguous to NATO, there might be an argument that, well, if uh, Putin takes over Ukraine, does he then go to the next step? I just don't believe that he's that crazy. I don't believe that he's going to attack NATO, knowing that we have, of course, our agreement with NATO that an attack on a NATO country is an attack on all. So my attitude would be to go in there and aggressively put pressure on Russia to simply stop the fighting, stop it. You know, we have allowed Russia and China to enter into a kind of, of alliance that is not good for us as a country. And I think we need to go in there and break that up by letting Russia know, letting Putin know that you are far better off getting along with the United States of America than you're ever going to be making us the adversary or the enemy and working with communist China. But you know, you can't do that when we're as dependent upon communist China as they are. Yeah. So you've got to do both. You've got to break our reliance and dependence upon communist China for our manufacturing and so many other things that we are in basically working with them on. I mean, our, our pharmaceuticals, our pharmaceuticals coming from communist China. Are you kidding me? Right. Uh, sharing technology with them. We got to crack down on that, allowing them to infiltrate our country. 
So you, 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 you put the pressure on Putin and then you weaken communist China. Frankly, they depend upon us a lot more than we depend upon them. We've got enough allies out there that we can develop our manufacturing base with allies and internally. We don't need to depend, to depend upon communist China. You weaken communist China, then you weaken Putin's uh, dependence upon them because he knows they're an unreliable ally and you drive a wedge between those two. And then you, to me, you bring an end to the Ukraine war with that approach because it's no longer in Putin's interest to keep fighting with Ukraine. I think at that point, you, you try to engineer some kind of peace treaty and some kind of arrangement. And I'm not sure exactly what that would look like. Uh, some people are suggesting that he be driven back uh, out of Crimea. I'm not so sure. I've again been told by experts that Crimea is kind of Russian. So I'm not sure what that peace treaty looks like ultimately, but I think that that's where you go. Put an end to this thing by driving a wedge between Putin and communist China by weakening them both. No, I hear you. I hear you. And, and I and I see um, Eric P Peters in the green room. I'm going to get to him in, in about five minutes. I'm going to wrap this up. I do have a few more questions for you. Uh, in, in, <laughs> okay. in regards to this, you know, if you become, if you, if, when, when you become president um, with Russia and Ukraine, you wouldn't send Ukraine more money, would you? Oh my goodness gracious. Look, we are 32 trillion dollars in debt yeah 32 trillion dollars enough enough I, I i can't see sending ukraine any more money i think we've sent them too much now i mean how much is it 400 billion dollars i mean we, we we've got to stop right we've got to stop we got to stop spending money that we don't have on things that are not part of the vital interests of the united states of america while again our southern border is literally being invaded and we got border agents demoralized because they don't have enough to do the job that they were charged to do, uh, commissioned to do. And then they're being asked to do the job of social workers and bureaucrats. I mean, let's take care of America. Let's secure our own country as opposed to spending billions of dollars trying to secure some other country. What would you do about the border? You brought up the border. What would you oh. do on day one to secure the border? It's a mess. We have people coming in from over a hundred countries. I mean, you've got people coming in from the Middle East. You got people coming in from China. You got people coming in from Europe. The biggest misconception is, oh, it's just people from Mexico. No, it's not. No, no, no. There, there's so many loopholes in so many ways. All these different citizens from all these countries are just coming in. Just come on in. You saw the weasel Mayorkas justify and deflect and completely make every excuse you can think of in those hearings the other day. Oh, and, and to, to, to sit there with a straight face and tell us the border is secure. I mean, it's just it's, it's just one of the most insulting things I've ever heard a public official do in, in just telling a bold faced lie to the American people and thinking we're stupid enough to believe it. So you asked me, what would I do about the border? Number and I'll one. Tell you, and I'll tell you real quick, real quick, Bishop, before you tell, tell me what you're going to do. Seven it's estimated around seven million people have entered the country since Biden became president. I know. Go ahead. Go ahead. That's that's not illegal immigration. That's an invasion. Right. Number one, build a wall and enhance the wall with every available technology to detect anybody trying to go under it, over it, around it, through it. Number two, 
give us the full staffing of border agents to secure our border as opposed to what we've got now. We right. are we are woefully short and growing shorter every day because I'm visiting the, the border, by the way, next week. And I've been told by retired border agents who just left the service that the border agents are getting out because they simply are demoralized. They hate the job now because they can't do the job that the Biden administration has them doing. So give us the full staffing of border agents. That's number two. Number three, I would absolutely make clear if you cross the border illegally, you can never be an American citizen. You are forever banned from being an American citizen. And by the way, I would challenge the whole anchor baby movement. I believe that there is a constitutional argument to be made that that was never intended. It was never intended that anybody passing through our country having a baby, would that baby become an American citizen? That amendment, the 14th Amendment, was intended to, to make sure that the Africans who were brought here as slaves were citizens and that their children were citizens. And we've now completely perverted that into something else. And here's the last thing I would say, and that is I would make clear zero tolerance for legal, illegal immigration. If you come into our country illegally, not only will you never be a citizen, we will hunt you for the rest of your life and we will not rest until you are put out. And so therefore, I would empower ICE with, with, with extraordinary abilities to go after illegal immigrants and deport them. So I, that, because look, if you don't do that, it's never going to end. Because what we've got right now is everybody saying we don't like illegal immigration, but illegal immigrants knowing that if you get across the border, it'll be fine. You can live for the rest of your life in America, have children that become American citizens, and everything will be fine. We've got to bring an absolute end to that. And by the way, no asylum in our country. You want to apply for asylum, you must apply for asylum in another nation, not coming to the United States of America and then staying here on the basis that you got across the border claiming asylum. Absolutely. Very well said. I got to run here in a second, but I, I do, I do got to ask you two quick things. Your thoughts on how you will shut down this whole digital currency, how they want to take over, you know, uh, everybody's life. They want to monitor everybody's move, the World Economic Forum. I mean, we can go on and on with this, but this is becoming a reality. You know, they want to really put in this this system that is just pure communism. The United States government should have nothing to do with the World Economic Forum. We should have nothing to do with digital currency. Uh, we have the American dollar, and the American dollar is being weakened day by day by the policies of this administration. And with, when the, if the dollar goes, the economy of, the, of America is going to suffer a major blow and maybe even a collapse. That's what we need to be focused on, not on digital currency. And certainly, you would never see me attending the World Economic Forum. And some of the candidates running, I understand, at least one has been there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't darken the door of that evil group of people who think they know what's good for the entire world. By the way, Roy, before, before you go, I want to make sure that people know what my website is. And it's, on, it's right behind me. But, but just in case, may I say, it's ewjacksonforpresident.com. EWJacksonForPresident.com. I need 40,000 discreet donors in order to qualify for the August 23rd debate. And I'm asking for the help of your viewers 
in getting there and giving me an opportunity for my voice to be heard in the mix. Because right now, the mainstream media seems to be boycotting me. I think they're afraid of the candidacy of E.W. Jackson. Absolutely. And and I I got to ask you, gun control. Uh, but the last thing, gun control. What, what Where do you stand on that? I am a gun enthusiast. Not, listen, I, I own AKs, shotguns, Glocks, Berettas, <laughs> you name it. <laughs> I've got them all. I Listen, the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And once again, I would unleash the Justice Department on any state. In many states, there is no Second Amendment for all practical purposes. They're violating the civil rights of the American people. And I would haul them into court and make them change their policies so that law-abiding citizens can get guns everywhere in this country. And by the way, I pursue a policy that says no matter where you go, just like your driver's license is good, no matter what state you cross into, your right to keep and bear arms should be good no matter what state you cross into. You should never be in danger of going into a state with a firearm where you're legally entitled to carry it in your own state and having the, the authorities put, a, put you in jail for the very thing that's legal in your own state. I would bring an end to that stuff. I am a major supporter of the Second Amendment. I think it's the, it's the last line of defense that we have, maybe the first line against crime and tyranny. And the founding fathers put the Second Amendment in there for a reason, and it needs to be defended. Man, I'm really digging everything you're saying, man. I, I, I'm liking your style. I mean, you you have it all down. You know your stuff, and I'm still an undecided voter. So you know, I <laughs> you know, I so I, I voted for Trump twice, but I'm not I'm not as big on Trump as I once was. So, and 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 before to conclude, are you in the debates? Are you? Did you already qualify? I haven't qualified as yet, uh, Rory, because as I said, the mainstream media is boycotting me, which makes it that much harder to get my message out and to make people aware of my candidacy. So we're working on it. We're, we're doing everything we can to get there. We need a viral breakthrough in order for that to happen. Maybe it'll, to happen. Maybe it'll come from your program. Uh, so look, we're planning to be at the debates, uh, be in the debates, but we're not putting our eggs all in that basket because I think it's more important who is the last man standing than who is the first man to enter the August 23rd debates. So we're in this for the long haul. So if we're not in the August 23rd debates, we're going to be campaigning in Iowa and North Carolina and Nevada and New Hampshire. While the debates are going on if necessary, we're going to be trying to win voters to our side. I love it. I love it. And you brought up Vivek a little bit ago. That's the guy who's attached to the World Economic Forum. And he came out with a video of the video the other day trying to justify and trying to explain why he was there. And he's trying to say that he has no involvement. I don't know what to make of that. How would you in a debate like what what would you you know, if you if you guys were going back and forth, how would you destroy him with something like that? Because that's a big deal right now. Well, look, I think Vivek is a born again uh and he, was, and he was for the vaccines, too. Two years ago, there's a tweet saying he was happy the mandates were coming. He, Say, wanted, so, he wanted to force it on everybody. You know, I, I always say this, Roy. Don't just tell me you're a conservative. Show me your bona fides. Show me your longevity. 
show me why you are a conservative. Because as far as I'm concerned, if you're a conservative because you're seeking the Republican nomination and that's what you've got to be to get it, you're not a conservative. You're, you're just a convenient conservative. I want people of conviction. My conservatism goes all the way back to the days when I left the, the Democrat Party and joined the Republican Party. And people said, he joined the Republican Party for, for advantages. And I tell people, if you knew what Massachusetts was like, you wouldn't even say that because there are no advantages to being a Republican in Massachusetts. So when I joined the Republican Party, I did it out of conviction and I have never looked back. So I wouldn't trust anybody who doesn't have the kind of, kind of bona fides that gives me a sense of comfort that this person won't fold under pressure. And I don't have that comfort with that candidate I uh, and with a lot of the, the others either. I hear you. And, I, and, you know, I love talking to you. I could talk to you all day. But are you surprised that it's such a crowded Republican field right now with all the people jumping in? Well, you know, to tell you the truth, I really thought that this was what was going to happen. And I thought it because I think, unfortunately, politics attracts people who are hungry for power. And some of those people are going to see, a, a, say, a wounded front runner and say, well, you know what? I've got a shot. Uh, and so let's face it. And people say, I'm a long shot. I've got a much better chance than some of these other candidates in the race because, I mean, they're not even conservative by any stretch of the imagination. So I've got a better chance than some of them because I know I'm a conservative and my reputation is well known, particularly in the Christian community throughout the country. Uh, but some people are attracted for that reason. And I think others are attracted, at least me, because I love this country, Rory. I see we're in deep trouble. And I feel like I've got some things to say that people need to hear. And I owe it to my country to do that. I owe it to my country to be a part of the debate. And that's why I'm in this. Regardless of the outcome, uh, I intend to, to be in there defending uh, the principles that made America the greatest nation on earth and, and doing everything I can to make sure that we remain so. Hypothetically, hypothetically, if Trump is the nominee and he offered you a position in, in his cabinet, would you take it? In a heartbeat. You in would. a heartbeat. Because, because A, I, I, I will say for the record, I really believe that we owe former President Trump a debt of gratitude for what he did in the first four years. I mean, just the appointment of the three Supreme Court justices. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just grateful to God that he was able to do that. But number two, I'm in this to serve my country. And if I'm asked to serve, Rory, I'm going to serve. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, I'll tell you, and, and in terms of gaining ground, I mean, how are you guys doing with fundraising and really getting yourselves out there? I mean, what, give, give us kind of an update on that. Well, we're, you know what? We're very happy with where we are right now. In fact, I announced just two weeks ago today and we've got our staff assembled uh, we're putting together our finance committee. Uh, we're going to have a super PAC up and running probably sometime next week. We are very happy with the progress that we're making. The only issue that we're confronting right now is this boycott by the mainstream media, even some of the conservative media that don't seem to want to acknowledge my candidacy. But we'll break through that as well. Everything else, all the things that we're able to control are going exceedingly well. I'm very, very happy about it. And I'll tell you something, Rory, no matter how long shot uh, candidate people might see me, 
I'm not just running to get a message out, although that is part of my motivation, but I ran because I really believe that of all the candidates running, I would be the best president of the United States at this time, uh, based on our history today, on a whole, for a whole variety of reasons. So I really do want to be president of the United States. Yeah. And we got to bring God back in the picture. And I know Amen. you're, I know you're big on that too. You know, we've taken God out of society and, and bad things have happened. Really bad things. Yes, indeed. It hasn't worked out well for us. Took God out of the schools. No Bible reading, no prayer. How's that working out for us? We see what it's doing. Education in the, in the, 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 the basement and, and indoctrination at the pinnacle. Yeah. So you're right. That, in fact, that is the, the, the most fundamental theme of my campaign. George Washington said in his first proclamation, it is the duty of all nations to, to, to honor the providence of God, to obey his will, to be uh, grateful for his benefits, and to humbly implore his favor and protection. We've got to come back to the principle that our founding father laid down in his first proclamation, honor God be grateful for his benefits, implore his favor and protection, and seek to be a nation that does his will. If the first president of the United States, who we call the father of our country, thought that that was the first thing to, that needed to be said to the American people, I think maybe it's something that needs to be repeated to the American people today. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm praying for you. I'm rooting Thank for you. you. I'm rooting for you. I love everything you're doing. You're, you're a great man. You have so much insight. You have an amazing background. What a resume. And I think you'd be a great president. I really do, man. I Thank really you, do. Lord. After talking to you for an hour and a half, I, you know, it, it's, it's remarkable. It's fascinating. I mean, you are somebody that is just so articulate and you have it all figured out. And well, you're, you're, you're nailing it all in terms of policy. Like you're right on the money, man. Well, look, you're very kind to say that. Thank you very much. Uh, of course, I want your support and the support of every American uh, who I have an opportunity to reach. And so thank you very much for those kind words. I do appreciate it. Um, I don't I may not have it all figured out, but I know who does. And I, I've said I think I said this earlier in the program, Roy, anybody who thinks they can do this job without divine help, I think is a fool. Uh, so I know better than that. Uh, I'm humble enough to know that I'm going to need help from God and help from a bunch of other very wise people around me. And I'm going to choose those people very carefully. Yeah. Uh, but everybody's going to understand that the purpose of my administration is not to serve the interests of E.W. Jackson. The purpose of my administration is to serve the interests of the American people. I love it. I love it. And one more time, tell everybody where they can find you before you go. They can go to ewjacksonforpresident.com, ewjacksonforpresident.com. They can give, they can volunteer, and we are thankful for every bit of support we can get as we move toward the August 23rd debate, hoping to reach the 40,000 that we need to qualify. You know, I'm going to send a donation here today. So <laughs> well, you know, thank you, Roy. Thank yeah. you, my friend. Thank you. Absolutely, buddy. Well, take care. Let's get you back on the program very soon. And uh, God bless, man. God bless you. Thank you. Look forward to it. All right. Take care. Uh, everybody, stay with us. We will be right back. It's a beautiful day coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm excited to announce my new product, My Coffee. 
I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, mystore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence and this family owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever gonna have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants, which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery, or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. The my pillow guy. And you're looking good. He's still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever. My pillow 2.0. Wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took my pillow's patented fill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented my pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, MyPillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that MyPillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side, well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're Mr. Renfield, welcome. I am 
man. No, he's evil. We will protect you. You have the word of the most trusted institution on Earth, the Catholic Church. Your sole purpose in life is to serve me. Now, let's eat. I just want a normal life again. No, 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 no. God bless you, Mr. Renfield. Oh, God bless you, nuns. You're a hero. Robert Montague Renfield. Let me explain. I work for Dracula. Count Dracula? It's the real fucking Dracula! Some call me the Dark One. Others, the Lord of Death. <laughs> so you bring in people to eat? Well, I do other stuff. Like what? Wash his cape? The cape is dry clean only, strictly. Yeah, I'm aware of this shit. This fly, yeah. You're gonna think he's such a bad guy, but you're never really gonna be free until you face him. I will no longer tolerate Abuse. <laughs> I deserve happiness. Let me explain something to you, okay? You deserve only suffering. I will unleash an army of death. Everyone you care about will suffer because you betrayed me. We have to stop him before sunset. I am enough. I deserve happiness. And I take full charge of my life tonight! You know when something crazy happens and someone's like, it's okay, I've seen way worse? Everything I saw you do today is gonna be my way worse. It's my least favorite part of the job. I don't Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. The My Pillow guy. And you're looking good. He's still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever, My Pillow 2.0. Wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took My Pillow's patented bill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented My Pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, MyPillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that MyPillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side, well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature-regulating thread. 
The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code and for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back, Rory Sodder and the news, coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. My next guest, uh, he's had a hell of a career. He's done a lot of great things, uh, impressive resume. Mark Tapson, you're with us right now, first time on the show. It's an honor to have you here, my friend. Uh, give us a bio, a background, how it all started for you, all that fun jazz. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming, man. My pleasure. I'm a writer, uh, a podcaster as of recently. Uh, I'm a speaker. I work mostly for the David Horwitz Freedom Center, which is a nonprofit organization that's devoted to promoting the ideals of freedom and democracy and American exceptionalism and all that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, David Horowitz, for those people who don't know, is one of the major conservative thinkers and writers of our time. He's a fellow who began as a far left radical and a red diaper baby, a child of hardcore communists. Um, but along the way, he saw the light and had a conversion to conservatism. And ever since then, he's been uh, one of the real epic warriors that we have against the far left ideology. Uh, anyway, now I write mostly for the Freedom Center, but along the way, I've written for many other conservative outlets uh, going back almost 20 years now after my own political conversion. I write usually about what I call the intersection of politics and culture. Um, because I'm not so much interested in politics, strictly speaking, as I am in how politics affects the culture and vice versa. So that means I write often about pop culture. Uh, in recent years, I've written a lot about masculinity, which has now become kind of a big topic among conservatives and in the culture. So um, anyway, that's a, a little bit about what I do. And what are, your, what, what are some of the latest things that you're directing your focus towards? What do you... Uh... Any any new any new articles any new projects? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm still working on the masculinity thing because I'm actually working on a book about that. Uh, but in terms of articles, you know, all kinds of things pop up. Like recently, um, I think the two most recent things I've written about are a couple of the biggest stories in entertainment. One is 
the the movie about child trafficking called Sound of Freedom, yep. which you know has turned out to be kind of a controversial uh, uh, movie, bizarrely. But I, I wrote an article about that and about the left's attacks on that movie. Uh, and now, and I've also written an article about uh, country music star Jason Aldean, yeah. who has written a song called "Try That in a Small Town," which also, like "Sound of Freedom," has uh, drawn a lot of uh, attacks from the left, from leftist reviewers and critics. And uh, so, those are the two things I've written about recently, which are kind of big stories in in pop culture. And don't you think a lot of these culture wars? are deliberate you know meaning that they create this sort of chaos to distract from the big problems going on you know i i personally try to stay out a lot a lot of the culture wars because i think it's like i said i think it's a it's something that they're they're trying to distract us from um from the bigger problems if that makes any sense it does uh, I think there is more to it, though, than just distraction. I mean, certainly, um, you know, certainly the left is really adept at, at distracting you from some of the big things that are going on. But the left takes the culture and this culture war very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have for 50 or 60 years, which is why we're in this position now. Um, I think conservatives have been really slow to catch on to what's been going on in the culture and the result is now that the left owns the culture. The left owns all of the cultural outlets that you could name. They more or less own the entertainment industry. They own the news media. They own education all the way, not just, you know, institutions of higher learning, but all the way down to pre-K now. All of those uh, arenas of the culture, the left controls, and they worked very hard for the last half century to do that because they know that the culture is where everything begins. Um, you know, the late great Andrew Breitbart, um, who actually gave me my start writing almost 20 years ago. Wow. Wow. Uh, talk, wait, wait, talk about that for a second. That's a, <laughs> that's a big deal, man. He, Breitbart is perhaps the biggest conservative news outlet in the game right now. I mean, I love Breitbart. That's where I go to get all my information. They're extremely, extremely reliable. And Andrew Breitbart was a legend. I mean, he would go and investigate stories and get to the bottom of things and touch things that nobody else would touch. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, he's passed away, I think, about 10 years or so. Maybe you know, 12 or 11. Yeah. I, I can't remember if it was 11 or 12. Yeah, at least 10 years ago now. I died way too early. But um, what was you know, he like, though? You, you, met, you met him? Oh, and yes. Out with him? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, what happened was, you know, Andrew Breitbart was himself a, he was left-leaning, he was a Democrat yeah. uh, until he too saw the light. I mean, this happens very often, you know, it, it doesn't happen very often the other way where conservatives turn left. Um, but um, Andrew, uh, you know, was becoming kind of a big deal as a culture warrior. And he latched on to me uh, because back in, well, it's kind of a long story. I'll give you the thumbnail sketch of it. My political conversion happened, I mean, I, I used to be a Democrat for most of my adult life, but I was never very political. I didn't care about politics. I lived and worked in a total artistic bubble. I mean, I cared about the arts. I was a musician, 
Uh, I was also kind of involved in academia. So, and those are obviously very left-leaning uh, areas. And so I lived in a total liberal bubble. I was what I guess a lot of people would call a brain dead liberal because I, I just didn't know anything about politics and I did not know any conservatives at all. I did not know a single one. So everything I knew about politics, I just absorbed from the culture and from the people I was around. And so I was clueless. Um, but at the time, which is about 2003, I was working as an assistant to a writer director in Hollywood who strangely enough happened to be conservative. And, um, can you reveal was, the name? Can you reveal the name? Sure. His name is Cyrus Narasta. Okay. And uh, he's most well known now for having done a couple of projects like The Stoning of Soraya M, which was a, a very controversial movie from several years ago about um, the stoning of a woman in Iran. Um, but he was conservative, and we started working to, together on a project for ABC, a miniseries called The Path to 9 11, uh, which was supposed to be about the, the the nine years leading up from the first World Trade Center bombing, which a lot of people don't have for, completely forgotten about. That was, in in the, 19, that was the 90s, yeah. Yeah, early, it was 93. There was a, a bombing of the World Trade Center by, Center by Islamic terrorists. And um, so we were going to do this miniseries that ABC was very excited about that covered the, the, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism all the way from that Trade Center bombing to the attacks on 9-11. Um, so my friend was going to be the writer of this project, and I was his assistant. Um, we had no intention of politicizing it. In fact, you know, I was liberal at the time. He was conservative. We never had political discussions about it. We had story discussions and character discussions and discussions about history, but it was never our intention to politicize it. But ultimately, just before ABC was going to release it on the anniversary of 9-11, in 2004, I think, um, Clinton administration alumni got wind of the fact that we were making this project and they found out that my friend Cyrus was conservative and that also the guy who was going to direct the project um, was overtly Christian, not necessarily conservative, but Christian. So they felt that what was going to happen was they felt that this was going to be a hit piece on Clinton, who was president for all of that time up until the, the last few months before the 9-11 attacks. So they were very worried about protecting his legacy um, against charges that he was soft on terrorism. So they started this all-out attack on the miniseries before it even aired, before anyone even saw it. It's, it was very, very controversial. It was in all the media. The attacks were just unbelievable. That you know, they claimed that uh, it was a right-wing conspiracy to smear Bill Clinton. Um, it was nothing like that, of course. But um, there's actually there's actually a whole documentary about this, which is really fascinating. In fact, I have the poster for it behind me on my wall there, blocking the path to 9/11. It's a fascinating documentary. You can find it on YouTube. It tells the whole story. The upshot of this is that it really woke me up to what my party was all about and what it had become while I was not paying attention. Because there was a whole internet campaign against my friend. He was receiving death threats. Um, uh, uh, Senator um, 
Harry Reid at the time threatened to pull ABC's license if we showed that miniseries. And again, no one had seen it yet. They didn't know what it was going to show, right. but they were afraid that it might make Clinton look bad. Um, so anyway, this woke me up politically because I thought, what is happening here? This, this, these are the these are the people I've been voting for. These are the people I thought I shared my beliefs. And my, you know, and also the research that I did for the project really opened my eyes to the threat of Islamic fundamentalism, which Democrats completely downplayed. Um, so all of these things contributed to me gradually opening my eyes. And then my friend Cyrus introduced me to a whole subculture of Hollywood conservatives. <laughs> And I met all these people who actually turned out to be really decent human beings. They weren't knuckle-dragging racists like I and all my friends had believed, you know, and were told. So they were intelligent, decent, good-hearted people. And so it just opened my eyes hugely politically. And I appear in the documentary briefly. I'm interviewed. And in the process of that interview, I talk about how it opened my mind politically. Um, and Andrew Breitbart latched onto that. He saw that. And so he kind of, he approached me at a screening of this documentary and said, uh, hey, do you feel like you're in the right place now? You know, like now that you've woken up politically, do you, do you feel like you're home? And I said, I'm getting there. I think I'm getting there. Um, and he said, well, look, I'm, I'm going to start these websites. Uh, I'm going to start a whole bunch of websites called, uh, you know, Big Hollywood about conservatives and, and entertainment, uh, big journalism, which would be about conservatives and the news media. Uh, he started a, a series of websites, big journalism, big Hollywood, big government, and they were all conservative perspectives on these topics. And so uh, I said, yeah, I would love to write for big Hollywood. And so that was the first time I started writing articles. And especially that was the first time I started writing as a conservative. So Breitbart really, I mean, all of those websites now have been kind of collapsed into Breitbart.com, which you referred to earlier. Right. Um, but they used to be several, you know, websites about different um, fields of, of concern. So anyway, that's how I, I didn't mean to go on and on about it, but that's how I turned conservative and that's how I got my start. And that's, uh, you know, why I'm kind of, culture oriented because that's always been my background and my interest and Breitbart really sort of gave me my my start with that um oh you, you wanted to say yes something else said and uh yeah no just that uh oh to make to finish my point which i started a long time ago is that Breitbart was always fond of saying that politics flows downstream from culture yeah and i i Conservatives now are catching on to that. We, we've really, I think, wakened up to that. But the left has known about it since the 60s, if not before. I, you, you could even go back farther than that, uh, where the left realized that pushing economic Marxism was not working out for them because economic Marxism always fails. But cultural Marxism is extraordinarily successful. It's very insidious and and it's very successful in terms of steering the culture where you want it to go. And so that's why the left has focused on education. They focused on, on taking over entertainment and the news media because they know that that's how you change people's hearts and minds. And then 
ultimately change politics. Yeah, you know, wow. I mean, that 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 was that was that was amazing. All that I, I'm taking that I'm taking everything in, but I want to go back to what you said about the 9/11 documentary that you put together, and the people that interfered uh, from the Clinton, you know, uh, you know, mob or whatever we want to call them. Um, that scenario is interesting because there are a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats that blame Bush for what happened on 9-11, including Donald Trump. Donald Trump said, you know, 9-11 happened under your watch, buddy. But now you brought up another perspective and, and another kind of way of looking at things. You talk about how Bill Clinton was weak on terror. Could Bill Clinton have been responsible for 9-11 and not George W. Bush like so many people are trying? I mean, I, I've even said at various times that I think George W. Bush, you know, uh, easily could have prevented this and he did not. Um, but, you know, that that has nothing to do with obviously Clinton being soft on terror. So I want to know your thoughts on this. Well, you know, Bush was in office for something like eight months um, you know, before the 9-11 attacks. So it did happen on his watch. And there was a little bit of concern. I mean, it's unclear a little bit as to how far up the chain it went, but there was some warning. There were some, um, you know, lower level suggestions that were kind of climbing up the ladder that we needed to be on the lookout for this Al-Qaeda group, you know. Um, I mean, you can't, you definitely cannot lay this whole thing in the lap of George Bush. I mean, you can't, you could say, yes, he could have acted faster to shut, to try to uh, shut Al Qaeda down or to figure out what was going on. But all of the groundwork was laid for that years before, including the plans for 9 11. I mean, that was something that was put together over a long period of time. Al Qaeda didn't just, uh, you know, on September 10th say, hey, let's, uh, you know, I know what we can do. Let's get some guys to fly planes into the buildings. This was something they'd been planning for a couple of years, you know, well in advance. Um, so during the time when Clinton was in office, which was from 93 to 2001, that's the time frame in which these Islamic fundamentalist groups, primarily Al-Qaeda, um, grew and accelerated and intensified and they they attacked American interests abroad for years beforehand. Um, and we even, you know, we even had an American journalist named John Miller interview Osama bin Laden um, prior to the 9-11 attacks. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just there there were so there was so much advanced notice um, that people just didn't take seriously because they thought, well, here's this guy, you know, this primitive Muslim living in a cage somewhere. What kind of a threat can he pose? You know, these guys are just low level terrorists that will set off, you know, occasionally they might set off a bomb at an embassy somewhere abroad, but that's distant. That's somewhere else in the world. It just, you know, how can it be a primary concern? Uh, but there were lots of signs leading up to it and leading up to the 9-11 attacks. And I think a lot of the blame needs to go to the law enforcement agencies, the CIA and the FBI, who were not working together uh, because the FBI had a lot of 
hints that something big was about to go down. They would try to pass this information on. The CIA didn't want to cooperate. It's, it's just, it, it's a huge mess. And it's fascinating to read about and, and to explore all of the, you know, the background to the 9-11 attacks. Um, but it's, it's not something you can just put on George Bush. Right. Maybe he could have acted faster. I don't know if it would have been in time to prevent the actual attacks. But all of that really built up during the Clinton years. He was soft on terrorism. Uh, we had numerous opportunities to take bin Laden out, mm -hmm. uh, but never pulled the trigger. Uh, we never literally pulled the trigger, uh, but we could have uh, because we knew that he was a developing terrorist leader and that he might pose a threat uh, to America. So uh, there's blame to go around, let's put it that way, but it's, it's, it's not something that sits with George Bush entirely by any means. Right. Now, and I feel like there was a lot of funding going on from the Clinton administration to these Al-Qaeda organizations. Is that fair to say that all, you know, there was funding which led up to this and helped them gain a lot of ground? Well, it's, again, it's complicated. And the whole issue of funding Islamic terrorism is another fascinating uh, aspect of this whole, this whole background. But it's, I mean, I don't think you could say Democrats were directly funding Al-Qaeda or anything like that. But, um, but Democrats, you know, the, the far left downplays Islamic terrorism because the far left loves multiculturalism. And so they love, you know, they'll, they'll attack America and West and the West first before they will attack, um, you know, a different culture or a different um, country or a different religion, especially Islam. In a way, there's this, you know, you could say, in fact, David Horowitz calls it the unholy alliance between the radical left and fundamentalist Muslims because they to a large extent, they have the same ultimate goal, which is the destruction of Western civilization as we know it. Mm -hmm. um, once they accomplish that, things might be different. Then, you know, then the fundamentalist Muslims are going to turn on the hard left in a heartbeat. But, you know, up to that point, they have this, they, they have to a certain extent a shared goal. Um, so Clinton and, you know, the left, they downplayed Islamic terrorism, they downplayed the, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. Um, Clinton had other, you know, personal issues, you know, like with his sex scandals and things like that, which were occupying him and he was trying to stay in office. Uh, so uh, he could have done a lot more to shut down Al Qaeda. Uh, and even, as I said, to take out bin Laden and did not. Do you see something like this to this degree? like 9-11 happening again in the near future with the way our poor leadership is going? I, uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. Because if, if they're going to act, I feel like they would act under weak leadership, like a Biden administration. Because, you know, we're, we see what's going on. But go ahead, sorry. Well, no, no, that's, that's fine. I, I mean, that's a good point. But I don't see and I hope I'm right about this, but I don't see major attacks in the planning from Islamic terrorists now. 
what I think they're more concentrated on is quite simply just infiltrating the West like they've been doing for many years now. I mean, we've thrown open our borders at the, in the United States. You know, we don't know who's coming across. Yeah. But they've, caught, they've caught potential terrorists coming across the, the border and people whose names are on the terror watch list. They've caught those. How many have we not caught, you know, or how many are not on the watch list uh, who will be potential terrorists? So uh, and all across Europe, you know, mass immigration from Islam, mostly Islamic countries, it's changing the landscape. There's really no need to try to take down, to try to devastate the West financially like like the 9-11 attacks did. You know, that's part of the reason they chose New York and attacked the World Trade Center was because it was a center of world finance and a center of Western economic power. And they wanted to cause severe damage to that, which they did. They don't need to do that now because the infiltration is doing that for them. I mean, and they also, they can just focus on smaller attacks like, you know, wiping out 50 people in a nightclub, um, you know, with, with these so-called lone wolves terrorists who are actually just, they're jihadists, you know, they might not, they might be operating quote unquote alone, but they're operating under the same ideological impulse, which is jihad, which is, you know, war against the infidel. So I, I think, you know, the West is doing a pretty good job of collapsing itself without Islamic terrorists having to plan a major, you know, attack like a nuclear weapon going off in Los Angeles or something. They don't need to do that. Maybe in 2001, it made more sense. But now the West is essentially committing suicide. You know what they say, what the famous saying about uh, civilizations is that civilizations don't die by murder, they die by suicide. Uh, in other words, they're they kill themselves from within, not usually from without. And that's what's happening in the West now. So I don't think Islamic terrorists, uh, I don't think they have any plans for, you know, a major attack like 9-11. You know, you brought up something very interesting, and I don't think enough people talk about this with 9-11. Um, we, we obviously have talked about all the lives that are lost you know, all the victims, but you brought up the economic impact of 9-11. Explain that to the audience because, you know, the, the amount of money that was lost, the amount of rebuilding, um, I'm sure you have some of those numbers, right? Uh, not off the top of my head anymore, but yeah, it's, I mean, the, the numbers were massive. I mean, the, the economic impact that it had on America and hence on the rest of the world and, you know, on our allies in Europe, it, it was it was pretty enormous. Uh, now, obviously, the lives lost were, you know, an unimaginable tragedy on their own. But the bigger, broader impact was as it was intended to be, which was to kind of cripple the West and especially America economically. Because America, you know, Bin Laden called America the great Satan, and he called Israel the little Satan. You know, so the, the attack was specifically on America and specifically on New York and specifically the World Trade Center because it was intended as, well, not just, uh, not just to kill a lot of people, but to attack these centers of 
American economic and financial power. And, you know, uh, bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, they had no idea those buildings were going to come down. That, that was just a, a bonus. They had no idea that the structural damage would happen so fast and the buildings would collapse. That was, uh, you know, that was just an extra bonus for them. Um, they thought that the attacks would just be devastating enough and, and terrifying enough to Americans, which they were, but they didn't know that those buildings would just, would collapse under the, you know, the, the, the enormous heat generated at certain parts of the building um, by those planes. Um, but that was just, you know, that just made the victory all the bigger of a high five for them, you know? I was watching those those towers come down because it, it and it was more than just the finance financial or economic impact it was the symbolic impact you know the symbolic impact of the great satan america this huge you know the world superpower and look you know we can send a couple of planes into their buildings and look at the damage we can do we can devastate the whole country we can cause years of economic turmoil um you know, America is what uh, bin Laden called a paper tiger. We're not a real threat. Look at what we can do, you know, just a few of us, just two, do not even two dozen of us. Look at what we accomplished. So it was a huge, had a huge symbolic impact and it really empowered jihadists all around the world who thought we can do it. We can take down America. We can take down the West, you know, yeah. uh, they have all the power, uh, you know, but they think they have all the power, but we have Allah on our side and we will be victorious. They still think that. And Mark, a lot of people think it was an inside job. I mean, there's so many red flags. You talk about Donald Rumsfeld and with all the missing money. Uh, we can talk about how a few days before the towers went down, they took out a lot of gold underneath the building. The owner of the building, Larry Silverstein, took out a big terrorist insurance policy about a week before the towers hit. So, I mean, I think it's reasonable, and I'm sure you agree, that people question this narrative and keep wondering why so many questions are unanswered. And let's also talk about the, the documents of the families and the victims remain sealed. So, I mean, there's a, not a lot of transparency. Well, I mean, I'm of the feeling that, you know, conspiracy theorists are going to conspiracy theory, you know, they're going to do what they do, which is, and conspiracy theorists, uh, and I kind of hate to use that term now, because these days, <laughs> these days, conspiracy yeah, I know. these days, us conspiracy theorists, we are, we're undefeated. It exactly. Seems, these we, days, we just, keep winning. we just keep winning. Yeah. Exactly. These days, the conspiracy theories—they're all true. They're all true. Dude. <laughs> we just—we just prove you know, every. It's like every week, another conspiracy theory, like about COVID or whatever you want to name. You know, it's all—it all turns out to be true. So, and that term, Mark, you remember when that term was originated? It was originated back, I think, when the C. If I'm not mistaken, wasn't it when the CIA was formed? And they basically, or, you know, with all, with after the Kennedy whole thing, anybody that questioned any narrative about anything, they would be called a conspiracy theorist, right? Yeah, it, it's a way, I mean, it's obviously a way to delegitimize somebody and their ideas. Um, and, you know, it, it, that, that definitely happens sometimes. But on the other hand, it also definitely happens that there are 
conspiracy theories that are just pure bunk. <laughs> oh yeah, like Jay, like John F. Kennedy Jr. coming back and being Trump's vice president. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one, but that's that's an interesting. Uh, oh one. yeah, and the QAnon stuff. I mean, and then you know everybody was saying that Trump was going to be reinstated. I did so much nonsense, you know. Yeah. Just, and it takes it really, you know. A lot of this stuff, it's always very interesting because even when conspiracy theorists are making stuff up, they're really clever about putting this stuff together. And they're really clever about implanting doubts and questions in your mind. Yeah? And it takes a, sometimes it takes too much research to debunk these things. Most people don't have time you know, to dig into all these things and debunk them. Um, but as far as 9-11 goes, I'm of the belief that there is there is plenty of evidence. And first of all, a lot of the stuff that conspiracy theorists bring up about 9-11, a lot of that has been debunked. You just have to look it up, but most people don't. I don't know, you know, some stuff is still a mystery, I suppose, but there's plenty of evidence, you know, for, uh, what do they call it? What's the... Um, Occam's razor, you know, the old philosophical saying Occam's razor, that the simplest explanation is usually the best and the truest. And I think there's plenty of evidence that, the, you know, 9-11 went down exactly as the narrative uh, goes. Now, there may be a lot of people who, there may be a lot of people who were in power then who don't want to be 100% transparent about things. But once you start really researching what happened that day, you find that it's much less of a conspiracy than it was just some unfortunate, uh, some unfortunate luck combined with um, just cluelessness about certain things. Um, and so, anyway, it's, you know, it's that's a whole topic to get off on. But I, I don't buy into the conspiracy theories about 9/11. I don't think you know. Even if you think that Bush and Rumsfeld and that and his whole their whole crew were evil, um, they're you know they're not that evil, <laughs> and it was uh, you know it was Al Qaeda, it was Islamic terrorists that brought down the World Trade Center. I that's I stand fully behind that. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I hear you, and I, I got to ask you. Um... With what's going on in the Middle East right now, are you very concerned? You know, with Iran making threats and all this yeah, other. What? Yeah, Iran is always a problem, um, and especially when you've got a Biden administration that is supportive of the of the mullahs in Iran, uh, as opposed to being supportive of the Iranian people. And this goes back to Barack Obama, who, I mean, he missed a golden opportunity. Of course. He didn't miss the opportunity. He ignored the opportunity, but he missed a golden opportunity to support the Iranian people in their attempt to sort of overthrow the mullahs. And if we had helped the Iranian people overthrow those mullahs, it would be a radically different landscape in the Middle East now. Instead, Obama sat on his hands and let the mullahs put the Iranian revolution down and so now we've got what we've got, which is these mullahs who are uh, psychopathic, you know, anti-Semites and, and anti-Westerners, and they're getting closer all the time to developing nuclear weaponry, partly because we help fund them. At least the Biden administration released funds, you know, that 
the Trump administration had been holding on to. So, uh, yeah, Iran, the Middle East is always a powder keg that we've got to keep an eye on. Um, but, I, you know, I think we're dealing with so much here at home yeah. that I think the Islamic threat is less serious than it was at the time that I was really opening my eyes about it. You know, back in the early 2000s, um, up until recent years, I, I, I think the Islamic threat is, it's always kind of ever present, but it's, uh, I'd say less urgent than some of the other ideological issues we're facing, like do wokeness. You, yeah, do you worry, though, that the streets in America, I mean, some of our country already looks like this, but do you worry that it can be so bad like it is in Europe with all these Muslims coming in, invading. And in Europe, if you're looking right now, certain parts, these Muslims are overtaking the population of the, the own the own citizens in, in, in the city. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I don't see it happen. I mean, it's something we have to be careful about. Just immigration in general, we've got to kind of get our act together about. But it's, it's less... Muslim immigration of that sort is less of a concern here in the United States for a couple of reasons. One is that America assimilates people better than Europe does of, of different cultures. Europe, um, you know, Europe was happy for years and years to import masses of, of immigrants, of migrants to come do their work for them, you know, and they didn't care where they came from or what their ideologies were. And so now they're dealing with that problem. Um, and it's, it's, it, it's a serious threat to European civilization now. Um, and, you know, the European elites still won't wake up about it, most of them. Um, I, it's less of a problem here in the United States, just for a couple of reasons. We assimilate people better. Uh, we're not taking in, you know, literally tens of millions of Muslims like they were all throughout Europe. Um, but you know, it doesn't take, and there are plenty of Muslims who come to America for the opportunities that America provides them. You know, there, uh, or in fact, there are lots of Muslims who go to anywhere in the Western world because it, it, it helps them get away from Sharia law. You know, they're not fundamentalists. Um, it helps them escape Sharia law and find opportunities and freedoms. But there, of course, is an element of uh, Muslim immigration that can be very concerning because they have no intention of assimilating whatsoever in Europe or in America. Their, their intentions, as you can see, is happening in Europe. Their intention is to create entirely Muslim enclaves where Sharia law rules and they have their own communities and they become what they're called, what they're called in Europe, no-go zones, because you don't go there if you're not Muslim or if you're you know, if, if, if you're police or ambulances or whatever, you don't go in those zones because they'll throw rocks at you or shoot at you for trying to do your job in those zones. So I don't see no-go zones happening here in the United States. That's something that would be really difficult to accomplish. So the, the short answer is, is no, I don't see that as much of a threat here in the United States. I hear you. I hear you. And I mean, you know, also I, I want to ask you with the, with World War III at this point being inevitable, 
everybody has their own opinion on what that actually looks like. What do you think that looks like? Do you think that looks like the Middle East going crazy, China going crazy, Russia going crazy, every country just go just doing their thing and just just saying fuck it and just <laughs> like I mean what what does that look like to you? Cuz everybody has their own opinion. Cuz I think what I think in my eyes how I see this, World War 3 means everybody gets involved and everybody <laughs> fucks each other up and it just it, it creates this big madness it's madness i don't i mean that's the way i perceive it what do you think it's that's what thomas hobbs would have called the war of all against all yeah like um, all we're all they're all we're all fighting each other yeah i mean yeah, yeah right well we don't know you know we're in a really precarious position now because america is no longer the superpower it's no longer the reigning superpower no um or the lone superpower, you know? And our enemies know that. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's a massive state enemy like China, I mean, they see that we're weak. They have no problem, you know, standing up to our our uh, Secretary of State, you know, and telling him, we think you're coming from a position of weakness, which they literally told him to his face. Uh, you know, Russia doesn't think we're as strong anymore. No, way. and even, is, you know, even Iran, uh, you know, the Iranians or Muslim fundamentalists, they see that we're not as strong. And, you know, there's an old Muslim saying, a falling camel attracts many knives. In other words, the weak creatures in the herd, when they start to go down, you know, the, the predators go for that one. And when they see that America is weak, as it is under Joe Biden, um, then it attracts enemies. So we don't know where this is headed. I mean, uh, you know, we're already involved in a, you know, an unofficial third world war uh, in Ukraine uh, because we're funding, you know, the Ukrainians against Russia. So, I mean, we're already involved in this, in, in something that could any day just turn into World War III. But... So I don't know what it's going to look like. You know, it, what will happen, for example, if China decides to just take Taiwan? You know, is America going to try to defend Taiwan? China knows we we can't <laughs> we can't do it. Yeah. I mean, we so who knows? I don't know. I wish I had an answer to that, but um, I think we have to be careful about pursuing American interests first. Uh, yes, we have to defend our allies and protect our allies, but we also have to be a little smarter about ge the geopolitical factors here. And we have to decide, you know, we have to look at ourselves and say, look, we're not coming from a position of real strength anymore. What do we have to do to, to get there? What do we have to do to empower ourselves where all of a sudden people are afraid of us instead of the other way around? Right. Um, so I don't know what World War III might look like, but it's coming unless we reclaim American exceptionalism, unless we reclaim our at home our love of country and, and build ourselves back up financially and come together as a people. Um, you know, it's all right if we have differing political parties, but we can't have this chasm between left and right. We can't have this suicidal divide like we've got now. Uh, we've got to close that gap and uh, pull ourselves together or our, or 
uh, or America, the American experiment is over. Yeah. And Mark, you brought up Taiwan and, um, you know, I've talked about this quite a bit. You know, I have always said that the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, I, I can't justify it. I can't defend it. I think it's atrocious. I think it's ridiculous. It should have, it should have never happened. Yeah. And we should, we should never be, we, we should not be sending them money. I mean, we've already sent them billions and billions with a B of dollars money we could have spent elsewhere for other, you know, resources that needed help in this country. But I will say this. I think the Taiwan defend us defending Taiwan is somewhat justifiable because of the semiconductor uh, industry. And because Taiwan has been our ally for as long as I can remember, I don't ever remember Taiwan messing with us. I've always remembered Taiwan being the most cordial, one of the most cordial countries to the USA. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we definitely have allies, long-standing allies like Taiwan and Israel, you know, who are always under threat of being uh, targeted by their, their larger uh, and more threatening neighbors. And I, I think it's right and just to come to their defense when they need it. Um, you know, Ukraine is a different situation. Uh, and, uh, I think we have to be careful about protecting and I think we have to be careful about strengthening ourselves first at home. Right. And then, you know, um, also hanging with our, with our true longstanding allies. And we're, we're just not in a position anymore to be the world's policeman. We were at one. We were at one point where we could do things like that. Sometimes that would get us into trouble, and sometimes not. Sometimes it worked out, but um, we're just not in that position anymore. Um, I think we've got to just come to grips with this, with the realities of geopolitics today, and um, put America first. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and um, I. Uh we've gone so far back as a country since Biden got in there. I mean, yeah. it's the amount of damage he's done yeah. in what, two and a half years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to take a lot to fix this. I mean, you know, Obama left a big mess, but I think Biden, uh, you know, leaves a much, much bigger mm -hmm. mess. I th think he makes Obama look basically, you know, like, like an amateur. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I could spend all all day talking with you. I got, I got a few minutes left with you, but I want to, what I want to do is I just want to go through a few things with you before I let you go. Sure. What was, it like, what was it like working in Hollywood and how long did you work in Hollywood? Oh, oh that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I did work in, you know, I, it's, I came down here uh, to Los Angeles in I think 1998, uh, intending to get into the music business because I was a musician up in San Francisco. <laughs> but instead, I happened to get involved in Hollywood uh, almost immediately. Yeah. And I began working kind of accidentally. I began uh, doing all the, you know, writing all these script cover, what they call script coverage, which is where you will basically write a review of a script for a producer or a director or a production company or whatever. They'll say, you know, we've got a pile of scripts here. We want you to read and give us your 
evaluation, you know, as to whether we, we can trash them or make movies out of them. So I did a lot of that. So I started doing a lot of writing and then I came to other people's attention, like my friend Cyrus Narasta and started working for him. Um, for most of that time, I was liberal. And so it just seemed kind of like a normal world to me. Yeah. Uh, but in retrospect, you know, once I started opening my mind, I could see the the blind hatred <laughs> that was directed at conservatives. And it's it's worse now because they're just open about it. Hollywood is just completely open about their disdain for conservatives, and, you know, and conservative audiences. I mean, it was Hollywood's a really ugly place. Uh, it attracts a lot of people who are juvenile <laughs> and power mad and and driven by fame. You know, it also attracts a lot of smart people who are who just want to tell good stories. So, but it's, you know, those people are kind of few and far between. So it's, it's an ugly business to get involved in. And if you're a conservative, you have to keep your head down and just keep your politics to yourself. Otherwise you find yourself frozen out of projects. Uh, I, I did a little bit of screenwriting, some of it, um, some of it uh, ghost writing, which I can't talk about. <laughs> uh, and it, it's a fascinating industry to work in, but it's just really, uh, it, it's ugly in a lot of ways, especially now with wokeness having completely conquered Hollywood and the entertainment industry. It, I, I think it's, I think you should just not even look to Hollywood anymore because there are now these independent companies. I think conservative storytellers are now starting to develop their own parallel networks of distribution companies and studios and things like that. And I think that's what conservatives are going to have to look to in terms of creating entertainment for people who want to see good stories and don't want to be bludgeoned by woke messaging in every movie they see, you know? So Hollywood's changing a lot. I hope it's collapsing as it currently, as it currently stands. I hope it's literally collapsing. And, and you would write scripts and you would you would present them and how many of your scripts would you actually get approved did it, did, did a few of them get made oh no what what I want to talk when I talk about writing script coverage what that is is people will send scripts or agents oh and you would evaluate you would read them and evaluate yeah, them exactly so I would evaluate these scripts and I would say I would report to the producers who they don't have time to read these scripts you know um, and I would report to the producers and say, well, this one is terrible. This one's terrible. This one's got some good, you know, might be worth you taking a read. You know, uh, this one's great. You know, you should read it right away. That kind of thing. Uh, I mean, I did a little bit of writing of my own in terms of scripts. Um, I didn't get any of my own produced. I did get a couple that got me other gigs. Like, in other words, you would write a script, an original script, and they might not want to make a movie out of that, but they might see, oh, this guy's a good writer. I didn't, you know, we don't want to get behind this script, but let's hire him to fix somebody else's script. You know, let's hire him to fix a movie that we've got that's got problems with it. So you can get a lot of work as a writer in Hollywood without even getting a movie made <laughs> because you can, I mean, not in the long run, you've got, you've got to show some success, but, uh, you can get writing work without having a movie produced yourself. If they recognize you're a good writer, 
they'll bring you on to existing projects and say, we need you to fix this because the original writer, you know, is, is not cutting it. We want to change it in certain ways and he doesn't know how to do it. So can you do it? Um, so it's, it's a weird business. And especially if you're a writer, it's a very unsatisfying business because you're kind of low man on the totem pole. You know, the producers all think that they're the creative ones. And then you've got the directors who think they're the creative ones. And then you have the stars who think they're the creative ones. They writers have the, they're probably held in the least esteem of anybody in Hollywood. It's, it's ugly. And when you're Mark, when you're going through these scripts, yeah. Like, how do you know, like, like how, how do you analyze, like, what are the steps to, to really actually know that this is a good one to present to the higher ups and say, look, I got a winner here. This needs to be made. You know what I mean? Like, how do you do the entire process? Like give us step-by-step. Well, that's a good question. I mean, because you have to, um, I mean, because that takes a skill. I mean, you got obviously you got hired in that position because you know how to really do your due diligence and you know how scripts, you know, are supposed to be from beginning, middle, end, you know, what certain parts are supposed to be, what's not supposed to be there, you know, so you kind of you've studied the ins and outs. Yeah, one one thing you have to keep in mind as a person that who, who does script coverage or a reader as they call it is you have to sort of think like the producer wants you to think. In other words, you have to look for what the producer is looking for. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you have to do in a script is look for, you know, is this a, is this a movie? Like, can, is, is this, um, it will, does this work as a movie? And is it the kind of movie that people will want to put millions of dollars into because it costs a lot of money to make a movie? unless you're talking about even a low budget movie, you know, is like one to $3 million. So, I mean, it, it has to, it has to kind of give off this vibe that it's going to make money, right. that uh, it can't just be good in a literary way. You know um, it's, it's got to have certain elements that are going to a, a appeal to the, the producers and the stars. So, so one thing you look for, for example, is, is there a good role in here for a star? In other words, is there a role in this script that um, Matt Damon wants to play? Is it the kind of script that Matt Damon is going to say, hey, I'd like to do this. This is great for me, you know? So uh, so you kind of have to think, who's going to want to get on board with this? Because if you can get a star on board, then all of a sudden everybody else gets on board. A director will come on, you know? And vice versa. If a director thinks, oh, this is a movie I want to make. And if he or she is a big enough name director, then a star will want to be, will want to work with them. So that helps put a green light on a script, you know? So you have to look for things like that. Like, is there a good role for a star in this? Um, is it, um, another thing is, um, is it, is it in line with the kinds of movies that are making money now? And th this is where it gets tricky because that means that the scripts that are really original, they often get overlooked or pushed to the back because most people in Hollywood do not want to take a chance on an original idea or an original script. This is why over and over again, 
you get sequels, prequels, uh, spinoffs, you get movies made out of comic books, you know, they, they don't usually, you know, a really original idea scares them because these executives and producers, their careers are on the line and a lot of money is on the line. And if they take a chance on something that's too unique and it bombs, you know, there goes their career. Um, so they, they'd rather play it safe. So if you've got a script that's made out of an existing property, like a Marvel comic, then, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get behind that. <laughs> you know, if you've got a script that's based on a best-selling um, graphic novel, that too is attractive. You know, so in other words, if it comes with a built-in audience, they're more likely to go with that. But a really original script that's, that just comes from some screenwriter's genius, you know, that's got... A, a hard uphill battle in Hollywood. And out of all the scripts that you would receive, how many would actually get made and actually get to the high level uh, to the well, executives? Well, a very small percentage because there's, there's a huge, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how many scripts are floating around out there and not just from random people, but scripts floating around from the biggest agents in Hollywood. I mean, really powerful agencies. And these are scripts that suck suck. I'm not kidding. I've read scripts from the biggest agencies in Hollywood that I thought, this, this is terrible. How did they get an agent? <laughs> uh, but there is a small percentage. I mean, it, it, in, a, in a way, it's kind of amazing that any movie gets made in Hollywood because it has so many hurdles to jump. But, but there is a small percentage, maybe, I'm just pulling this figure off the top of my head, maybe 1% or 5% at the most of the scripts that are out there will actually get in, into production, you know, um, because a lot of things have to come together for the green light to go. It's crazy, man. And what are some of your like best experiences, like people you've interacted with or people you were starstruck by, like heroes of yours in the industry? Because I'm sure you worked and interacted with people that you grew up watching and that you were like, oh, my God, wow, I'm seeing them in person now. Uh, well, I did. I, I wish I could say I met a lot of people like that, but you know, the the people at that level, like the A list, they don't interact, you know, with just anybody. So they, so uh, you know, so I don't get to interact. Most of you're right. Most of them don't. Most yeah. So I, I didn't get to meet Tom Cruise, for example. But oh God, my hero, man, my hero, God, I I would I would do anything to meet that guy. He is the greatest of all time, man. There is nobody like tom cruise he is oh man i i just <laughs> i just think he should run for president he should run for president i think he'd get more bipartisan votes than any candidate in history i think the guy's the most articulate individual uh i've perhaps ever seen he does all his own stunts i mean he's more than just an actor that guy uh is the king of hollywood he's the king of many other things too well, he's really he's really smart in uh, in the sense that he does he knows not to alienate half his audience. You right. Know? He doesn't talk. He doesn't talk politics, which is a good yeah. sign. Which yeah. basically leads me to believe that he's common sense when it comes to this sort of scenario. Which is why I think he'd be a great president. I think I think the guy because because let's think about it here, Mark. Like Matthew McConaughey is talking about running for president. That guy has a fraction of the fan base that Tom Cruise had. <laughs> 
So, I mean, if Matthew McConaughey is going to talk about it, why not throw Tom Cruise into the mix? Uh, that would be a very interesting, uh, you know, uh, it'd, be, it'd be very interesting if he threw his hat into the ring. Who knows what, you know, how that might upset the cart. The, the, only, thing, the only thing, though, Mark, is the Scientology. I know people bring that up. But, I mean, is that, you know, let's, let's just say, because, you know, I, I, I love talking about Tom Cruise. Everybody knows that I get so excited when his name gets brought up. Let, let's just say that, you know, he's at the point in his life, because he is, and he, and, he, and he comes to the realization that, you know, like everybody else realizes, that he's done it all. He's got nothing left to prove, you know, his Hollywood career, you know, um, you know, Arnold, Arnold took a break for a while, then went back to making movies. I mean, what if Tom Cruise wants to do more with his life? What if he actually does want to become president? I, I bet he has a lot of people who have been putting that in his ear. You know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he's considering that. I mean, in, in terms of the people that a couple of people that I did meet, uh, you know, I've met Jim Caviezel, for example, who is the star of that movie yeah. Sound of Freedom that we you know, br brought up briefly, I think, in the beginning here. But and Jim Caviezel, he's an amazing, intense guy. I met The Rock once. How was, how was that? He voted for Joe Biden. Remember when he came out on video saying, hey, Joe, we love you, man. We know you're <laughs> going to be doing good for this country. I, the Rock used to be a Republican. The Rock was a Republican. He was, he was on stage in 2004 endorsing George W. Bush. Yeah, I met Rock back before uh, – back before he really took off as a movie star. He was just starting as a movie star. Uh, really nice, friendly guy, very approachable. I really liked him. Um, but what happened yeah. real quick, though, with The Rock? Do you think the reason he endorsed Joe Biden is because it's kind of like a selling out sort of thing? I don't think he really believes Joe Biden is a good president. I think some. I think his handlers and, – and, Mark, you could probably – you know, agree with this and say this is true. These Hollywood individuals, these higher ups, do have handlers that give oh, them yeah. give them large amounts of money to endorse these candidates. Yeah, I think uh, I think The Rock's biggest problem politically, because you know he's floated the idea that he might run for president one day. Yeah, him too. There you go. And he and he's still not as big as Tom Cruise. I mean, maybe physically, yeah. but fan base wise, <laughs> not even not even close. Yeah, physically, he's like two of Tom Cruise. Right. Uh, maybe maybe three. Wait, uh, does The Rock do his own stunts? Some? I think he does some of them. I don't know. I'm sure he does some. You yeah. know, it's it's very very rare in Hollywood that you do your own stunts because they Tom Cruise does all his own stunts. Can you believe that? Well, he does it because uh, because he can because he's got the power to do that. Most stars, the vast majority of stars, the producers and the insurance companies and everything, quite simply, will not allow you legally to do your own stunts because yeah. you know what happens if you get hurt? Then you you know then we've got to uh, uh, postpone shooting and everybody's got to keep getting paid while we're waiting for you to heal and so. It's a huge liability, but Tom Cruise can do whatever he wants in Hollywood because he makes billions of dollars for them. So he can demand that. And the producers and the insurance companies, they'll all say, okay, but they're, you know, they're sweating bullets over it. You know, even Tom Cruise hurt himself, you know, broke his ankle or his foot once doing something. Um, but no, they, they don't allow other people to, I mean, The Rock, I'm sure he, does some of his, you know, some of the stunts, but uh, not anything dangerous. They they just won't allow it. Right. Um, but 
you know, and I think the rock's biggest problem politically is that I think he's a people pleaser. Yes. I think he, yes. You know, I don't think he is capable of really making the hard stands and, you know, having people come down hard on him. I think he's a people pleaser and, you know, he loves people. He loves his audiences. They love him. He, and he's just a really nice, great guy. And I don't think he's got what it takes politically to, to go against the flow when necessary or to take a strong stance. You know, he's going to take the easy people pleasing way out and you, you can't do that as president. And you were going to mention a few other names that got you off. Sorry. Oh, no, uh, just, um, I don't know, uh, one, I mean, as a script reader, one of my favorite things was uh, I read the script for Anchorman, you know, the Will Ferrell movie. And I remember when the script for Anchorman came through, I was laughing my butt off. I, every page I was laughing, especially because, you know, I knew Will Ferrell was going to be in it because he, he co-wrote it. So I, I gave it, you know, to our producer and I said, oh, my God, you have got, you know, we have got to get behind this because Anchorman is, is great. So that was one of the, the most fun memories that I have as a script reader is having Anchorman come my way. You you discovered one of the <laughs> biggest comedy movies to ever exist. No, I, I can't take credit for discovering it. I mean, by the time it I got I mean, to you kind of did. You got you were the first one to get the script and you're like, did, were you saying to yourself the entire time, this is a masterpiece, this has to go to the executives, this has to get made? Uh, yes, absolutely. But I, I will say, you know, I was not the first person. I mean, by the time it got to me, it was already because I, I was working directly under some producers. So by the time it got to me, somebody else had already sent it up, you know. Um, so I didn't discover it out of nowhere. And it was co-written by Will Ferrell and uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, the the, the co comedian director, I'm blanking out. But uh, so I knew that it was, you know, that, that some people were going to take it seriously or at least look at it, but I was cracking up. I loved it. So uh, I, I sent it up, you know, up the chain. <laughs> and Mark, it says, it, it says right here. Um, and wait, were you ever on like sets? Were you ever in like executive offices? Like, did, were you ever like in, in action, like right on, right in the middle of it all? Sometimes, uh, yes, yeah, a few times. How was that? It's weird. It's weird to be. Um, <laughs> it's weird to be like in an executive meeting, for example, where <laughs> you're sitting there with, you know, pompous, with, arrogant, big oh, shots. Yeah, some of them are. You know, some of them definitely are, and the 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 ass kissing that goes on in that room is, is unbelievable. It's embarrassing. What they got to get on their knees for the big boy, the big boys it's, that are giving the money. You know, that there are so many yes men around these people and it's, it's humiliating to, to watch them. Uh, but there are, you know, I will say there are some people in Hollywood, at, you know, the top level, there are some people who have a really good sense of story and they really care about making a good movie and they don't care about the political messaging um, you know, they just want, you, you know, they, they just want to make money. Um, and there are some people who just want to make money who don't have good story sense and they, they're not that smart, but they have somehow gotten some success and, you know, they think they're brilliant. Um, it's, it's a weird world to be 
you know, I, I never felt like I was quite a hundred percent in it or had both feet in the door. I always felt a little bit like an outsider. So it's, it's weird. <laughs> and tell me about the sets when you're on the sets, what was that like? Uh, it's, yeah, it's well for anybody who gets a behind the scenes look at Hollywood magic, it's kind of eye opening, you know, uh, the first thing I think you probably notice is how boring it is because it's kind of like they say what they say about the military. It's a lot of hurry up and wait, you know, and it's the same thing on Hollywood sets. It's just, there's a lot of hurry up and then wait. Like everybody's there at 6 a.m., you know, everybody's ready to go at 6 a.m., but it takes them three hours to get something prepared or get the shot ready or to get the lighting right, you know, and, uh, and then all of a sudden they're taking the shot and uh, then it's over with. Uh, so it's, you know, when you see it broken down like that, uh, it's, it's very eye-opening. And then you, you go from that to seeing the final product where it's edited beautifully and, you know, the, you're seeing the best of everything that happened and you don't see the, the sound man or, or the, the sound boom or anything. It's, it's a completely different experience. Imagine. And, you know, I, I do want to bring up, um, you know, how long were you in that industry for? Uh, probably, well, let's see, 98 to, I mean, I've, I kind of gradually phased out to some extent. I still have a foot in it occasionally. Um, but I, I really kind of gave up on Hollywood a few years ago. So several, so maybe 10, maybe 15 years off and off. And off. So sorry. I, I, I'm, my, my fiance was in the background for a second, but, um, <laughs> No, but no, you. I, I got distracted as as you were saying. All I good, mean, all, all good, all all maybe fifteen years. I haven't really thought about it, and I'm I'm not one hundred percent out of it. Um, I still, you know, will dip my toes in in that industry, um, for whatever reason. Um, and I've got a couple of. I actually have a couple of scripts that are. They're still they're they're still seeking funding. I mean, they've you know I've got. I've got one producer who hired me to write a script and he it's, it was years ago, but he's um, he's got a break now in terms of finding funding for it. And he, so he's pursuing that. So who knows, it might all of a sudden turn out to be a, you know, it might get made. So I still have one foot in that industry, but it's not my prime focus. So you were, so like you were in the Hollywood kind of bubble for 15 years, then you stepped out, but you're still involved in some projects if they come along. Yeah. But I, I will say, you know, it was fairly early on that I became conservative. I mean, you know, it was, uh, it was after this mini series in 2004 that I'd really begun waking up. So by, from 2004 on, I began very rapidly becoming, you know, yeah. full on hardcore conservative. Um, and, and I know there's conservative groups in Hollywood for actors. Did you ever attend those? I know Steve yeah. Bannon, uh, Scott, um, Scott Bayo. There were a bunch of different people that would attend those events. Yeah. That's where I met Jim Caviezel. Um, no, I, oh, wow. I hung, yeah, I hung out with There was a, I mean, it's not a secret anymore for a while. It was a kind of a, a secret An underground group. sort of thing for a while. Exactly. It was very, very underground. In fact, I went to the first meeting of this kind of meeting but the first annual the first big annual get together 
of this group that um, that Gary Sinise, actor Gary Sinise, and a couple of others started. And uh, there were about 300 people there. And then the next year I went to, again, the annual event for this thing, and there were 600. And the next year after that, they had to cap it at 900 because the venue would, couldn't accommodate any more people. So it was a, a quote unquote underground conservative movement that was kind of growing by leaps and bounds as the word got out, you know? So there are a lot of conservatives in Hollywood the vast majority of whom have to kind of, as I said before, keep their head down and keep quiet about their politics. And Mark, you know what I've noticed about Hollywood is that only the big names like Mel Gibson and like, you know, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, the ones that pretty much are at the very top can say they're conservative, can say they're Republican, but the ones, uh, you know, in like the middle tier area, the ones that, you know, are still, Maybe, maybe they're known, but they're not to that high level yet. They have to keep quiet. They can't talk. Otherwise, they risk losing work. And it's unfortunate the way that operates, you know? Yeah, yeah I think, in fact, somebody asked me not too long ago if I could name someone young <laughs> in Hollywood, you know, someone who wasn't Clint Eastwood or John Voight. Uh, right. You know, is, they said, is there, that was asked, is there an up and coming star in Hollywood who's openly conservative? And Literally, Chris, Chris Chris Pratt, kind of. I mean, he had he's gone. He's kind of backtracked a little bit after getting backlash from so many people about being a Christian and going to church and following the Bible and yeah. admitting that he was a conservative. So, but yeah, I mean, that's the only one I could think of. Was that was that Me the too. name you were going to bring up? That was the name. That was exactly the guy. And you're right. I mean, he's taken a lot of heat. Um, and it's so if you're if you're an established star, then the producers don't care. You know, they'll hire you because you're you know, they'll hire John Voigt because he's a he's still right. a big name. You he's know? an Oscar win didn't he? He won an Oscar yeah. years ago. I mean he's yes. been he's been in the game a while. Yeah. Yeah. So and they'll uh, yeah, so they'll hire those people because they don't care. They just want to make money. Right. But if you're not a big star, but you're openly concerned because you know whenever somebody makes a movie with you, they're going to be working with you sometimes every day for months and maybe right. even up to a year. So the very first thing that happens in these Hollywood meetings, like when that, when, when, when a producer brings you on as an actor and they have a kind of a meet and greet, you know, where they get to know you, the first thing that comes up 95% of the time is politics. They'll say, what about that, you know, what about that Trump, you know, he's done something else stupid, or what about Biden, you know, man, the, the right's going after him. It's because they're feeling you out. Yes. You know, they're feel, they want to see if you're the kind of person that they, that they have an affinity for politically or that they like. And so in these kind of meet and greets, if you start right off saying, oh, I'm, t I'm totally pro-Trump, you know, that does not bode well for your future on the project or in other projects. So if you're not well known, and especially if you're just a, what they call a below the line guy, in other words, you're not a star, you're just, you're one of the cat. I mean, you're one of the crew, like the lighting guy or something they're called below the line. Um, and if you're one of those guys and you're openly conservative, you'll be shunned. 
you know, there's this unofficial blacklist that is very real. And so I think that's why more and more conservatives are gravitating toward the idea of creating a parallel culture with their own studios, their own distribution system, um, producers who are more amenable to political, uh, you know, different conservative politics, that kind of thing. So we'll see what happens. And Mark, you know, um, I have to ask you a few more things before I let you go, man. There's so many, there's so much stuff. I mean, you've lived, you've lived quite the life. You've been all over the place. Um, when, when these individuals, uh, go in there and they're feeling them out, these high end, you know, producers and these executives, what if the response is from the individual, I'm not really a political person. How do they take that? Oh, they're okay with that. I mean, they figure, I mean, well, or do they say, or do they kind of say, well, you, or do they say, oh, you have to be though in this business. Yeah. It's hard to say. If you say I'm not really a political person, it might signal to them that you're trying to hide the fact that you're conservative. You know, it, it might say to them, oh, you know, hey, this guy's not a rabid leftist. He's not one of us. You know, uh, But if you're not really into politics, or if you say that you're not really into politics, that's that's not the kiss of death. Right. And didn't it, might they, make, it might make them suspicious of you, though. Yeah. And didn't they blacklist Jim Caviezel after the Passion of the Christ? Because I could have sworn I heard him talking about that. It happens to a lot of, you know, and it's happened to uh, James Woods, for example, you know. Right. Jimmy, uh, Wood, Jimmy Woods used to be a huge actor. They screwed yes. him over. Yeah. It's just they, they, you know, if they can they'll just kind of freeze you out of a project or they won't hire, they'll find an excuse not to hire you. Yeah. Um, they won't tell you to your face that that's what it's about, of course, um, because, you know, the truth is not very often spoken in Hollywood. <laughs> they, they tell you that the easiest thing to, the, they tell you the least confrontational thing. Let's, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very difficult if you're openly conservative. And yes, Caviezel, you know, I mean, he's a very intense guy. He's quiet. He's serious, um, and he's open, really open about his Christianity. I think he makes a lot of people in Hollywood uncomfortable. Um, oh, yeah. Because they don't know how to. He's not a small talk kind of a guy, and he's definitely not, you know, leftist. So I think he. I think a lot of people in Hollywood don't know how to deal with him, even though he's a very good actor and he's ridiculously good looking. I mean, yeah. when you meet him in person, yeah. you think, why, you know, why is this guy not an A-list romantic lead? You know, he's just ridiculously handsome yeah. um, and he's taller than I am. He's like six, three or six, four, you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I'm kind of rambling now, but yeah, they, they, they don't know how to deal with Caviezel. Yeah, and, and Mark, I'm, I'm reading here that you've written, and this is absolutely incredible. You've written about a thousand articles throughout throughout your career. Oh, yeah. At this point, I'd say probably more. Um, yeah, and, and I'm reading here, Front Page Magazine, um, in, in Intellectual Takeout, Breitbart, Time, The Federalist, National Review, The New Criterion, and elsewhere. You've also appeared on pretty much every TV channel. <laughs> well, 
news uh, news I, cha- regarding I mean news channels. You've been on yeah. every news channel. Yeah, I've I've written a lot of articles. I mean, some people have written more than I have, uh, but I've written a lot. Um, almost all about the, you know, the intersection of politics and culture or some kind of culture criticism or um, political critique of something. Yeah. And, and Mark, I have to ask you, so that documentary, where is it? Is it shelved somewhere? Oh, well, now there, let me make a distinction here. There was a, the, the original mini series that my friend Cyrus Narasta and I worked on. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a docudrama. I mean, it's uh, it's not what I would call a documentary. It's, it's based on fact, you know, it's and very carefully vetted, very carefully vetted. So it's, it's, um, it's entertainment, you know, it's a docudrama. It's called the path to nine yeah. 11 and you cannot find it because even though ABC finally aired it, they aired it only once and they will not air it again. And they refuse to allow a DVD to be made out of it. Um, because they're afraid that it, you know, they don't want it to, affect Hillary Clinton's political future. That's a whole other story. But you you can find it, I think, in bits and pieces on YouTube. If you just go to YouTube and look up the path to 9-11, I think you can see it, the whole miniseries, in, in chunks. Now, there was a documentary made about the making of that miniseries and about the controversy called Blocking the Path to 9-11. And that's the poster that's behind my head here. Uh, the Blocking the Path to 9-11, I think you can also find on YouTube. It's you can. I think it's for sale on Amazon. I really encourage people to watch, at the very least, blocking the path to 9/11, just to see the whole political controversy about it and how the left tried to shut it down and censor it, and actually did a pretty good job of it because the DVD does not exist. Right, and you also have the award-winning documentary Jihad in America, The Grand Deception, co-written with terrorism expert Stephen Emerson of the Investigative Project on Terrorism. Yeah, the, the Investigative Project on Terrorism, or IPT, it's a, a, it's, it's a, a journalistic investigative organization run by Stephen Emerson, who uh, for a certain stretch was just like, like the biggest uh, a, a journalist writing about Islamic terrorism in America. Uh, and he did a, he produced a documentary, which I co-wrote with him and a couple of other people called, uh, Jihad in America, the grand deception. And, uh, that was award-winning actually. Um, and I think that's available also on Amazon, that DVD. Uh, I don't know if it's available for rent or I haven't kept up with it, but it's, that's a really interesting one too. And, and it, it also says you're currently adapting Peter Swite, Peter Schweitzer, and Casper Weinberger's book, The Next War for the Big Screen. Oh yeah, there's uh, that's the movie that I was mentioning earlier where I said I had this producer who was getting funding for it. Um, yeah, Peter Schweitzer, you know, who is a big name conservative. He yes. writes all these great books exposing government corruption. Peter Schweitzer and um, Ronald Reagan's former uh, defense secretary, Casper Weinberger, they co-wrote a book together in the late nineties called the next war. And it's uh, a kind of a semi-fictional series of scenarios about what would happen if America went to war with China is one chapter, North Korea is another chapter, you know, so it's a different scenario. It was kind of a policy book, like what would happen and what should we do if America goes to war? So this friend of mine hired me to help kind of 
fictionalize one of those chapters, War with North Korea, and turn it into a movie. So we did that. Um, and uh, Peter Schweitzer is very happy. I mean, Casper Weinberg has passed away, of course. But um, Peter Schweitzer really likes the script. And uh, the producer is showing it around and trying to get some funding for it. And so it may happen. We'll see. Yeah. And final thing I'm reading here, you know, when, I, when I'm interviewing people, I always like to get as detailed as possible. I, I always like to go through every little every little thing. Uh, Mark, you're also the author of a forthcoming book on chivalry and the oh, yes. war, on war on masculinity from Templeton Press. Talk about that if you can. Okay. Uh, I'll try to make this brief because this is something I can, I mean, as you can see, I, I can ramble on at length about <laughs> well, I love, I love, I love the way you explain things. You're very insightful. You're right on par. I mean, you, you put everything into perspective per perfectly. Uh, thank you. I'll try to keep this short. But as I mentioned earlier, I think I've been writing a lot about masculinity for, I think, probably 10 years now. Yeah. Um, it's one of the things I'm writing about as, you know, as people know now, the, the so-called crisis in masculinity and the war on masculinity, that, that's become kind of a big topic over the years. A lot of people are starting to write about it now. My particular take on it, and this is a book that I'm finishing up, is about chivalry. It's about reclaiming chivalry as a masculine value and as a cultural value because, right. you know, chivalry is this notion. I think a lot of people, well, here's the problem with chivalry today. Young women despise the idea of chivalry because they've been trained to be feminists now, you know? Yes. And so the idea of a man being chivalrous, like protecting a woman or doing something um, polite for a while, opening a door, this, you know, a gesture as simple as opening a door, that is offensive to young women now because, hey, they're feminists. And, you know, if a man opens a door for me, it's obviously some kind of a, of a misogynist gender play, you know, it's uh, offensive to me. So young women have been taught to despise chivalry and young men, unfortunately, have been kind of taught to think that chivalry means debasing yourself in front of a woman. It means putting a woman on a pedestal and bending your knee to the woman and doing whatever she wants and debasing yourself. The real history and the real truth about chivalry as an historical idea and practice is that it is a warrior code of masculinity. Right. It is, it is a code of virtue and valor. And so my aim with this book is to help reclaim that idea and to um, present it the way it historically actually was and what it could mean to this war on masculinity and what it could mean to men who are looking for male role models and they're looking for a code of masculinity, but I don't think they're getting the right code necessarily uh, and so that's my goal is to sort of is to push the idea of chivalry as a as a way for men to fulfill their masculinity and fulfill their true nature. Mark, if you were in charge, how would you eliminate feminism? Number one. Number two, how would you make men men again? Wow. Uh, OK, well, two, two great I, questions, man. Yeah. Well, eliminating feminism. OK. <laughs> I mean, first of all, you know, feminism has done a lot of damage over the years, but I think it's taking a hit now because 
even the far left is abandoning feminism as they've moved on to transgenderism and yes. they've just completely thrown women and feminism under the bus, you know, yep. as they take it to the next level of gender ideology. Um, so I think a lot of women are waking up to the fact that feminism has not really done for them what it promised to do. It hasn't made them more fulfilled or happier. In fact, women polls show are more miserable now than they've ever been. Yes. Um, so I think a lot of women, I don't know that I would have to really do anything to eliminate feminism. I think a lot of women are waking up to the fact, you know, the damage that it's done to their lives. And I think a lot of men too are, are becoming more open about rejecting feminism and, um, and pushing back against it. So I think it's happening. I think the pushback is happening. And to make men more male or more masculine again, uh, well, rejecting feminism, you know, is the first part of it. But I think it comes from realizing and fulfilling your your true nature. I think uh, it, it comes from embracing certain traditional sex roles, roles that have been that have worked throughout history, you know, uh, but also realizing that there, it, it's more than just about being good at being a man. You have to be a good man. In other words, I think there are a lot of masculinity gurus out there that now that are preaching, you, here's what you need to do to be good at being a man. And those things are very valuable, but there's an extra dimension to that. And that's being a good man. In other words, being a man of virtue um, and morality. Uh, it doesn't help you as a man to just be good at doing the things a man is supposed to do if you're not a good man and if you're not um you know if you if you're not a man of service and uh virtue and and um even sacrifice um so i think those virtues get overlooked by a lot of men who are really looking for ways to to push back against the feminization of our culture yeah, very, very well said. And I do have to ask you before before I let you go, um, you working at the David Horowitz uh, organization, what are your day-to-day -day operations there? Oh, well, I do a number of things for them, but mostly, I, I mean, I write articles for them. Um, they've got a kind of a flagship website called Discover, sorry, called uh, frontpagemag.com yeah. with a lot of political commentary there. So I write there. I also help edit frontpagemag.com. I edit other people's articles. Right. Um, there's another website called discoverthenetworks.org, which is, which I write little uh, uh, daily news items of, uh, about. Discover the Networks is kind of the online encyclopedia of the left that the Freedom Center has put out. It's created this whole encyclopedia of the networks of leftists and how they're all connected. So uh, I work with that site and then whatever else pops up, like I, um, you know, the, the Freedom Center will sometimes, for example, have public events where I might um, introduce some of the speakers, you know, uh, or or moderate panels or be on the panels myself. Um, so uh, whatever they, oh, and I, I run a podcast now for them uh, called The Right Take with Mark Tapson. And um, so that's a weekly thing that I do. So I wear, I guess, a few hats for the Freedom Center. I love it, man. I love it. And your biggest, proudest accomplishment so far in your career. 
You still have a lot more to do, man, but you've done a, you've done a hell of a lot so far, I'll tell you. Well, thank you. Quite, um, quite impressive. I, I love You're the type of guy I can talk to all day, man. <laughs> thank you. It's, well, it's been fun. Um, my biggest, I haven't thought about that. My biggest accomplishment. Um, wow. Um, it's not that I have so many big accomplishments that I can't decide. <laughs> it's just that I'm trying to decide which one has been the most meaningful for Give me. Give three. Give the top three. Uh, I guess just, um, well, I guess working on, on the documentary, um, about the grant, you know, Jihad in America, working on that. I was proud of that. Um, working for the David Horowitz Freedom Center because David Horowitz, I mean, just having his confidence means a lot because he's really just one of the longest standing culture warriors that the right has. Um, so having the confidence of someone like David Horowitz or being a friend of someone like, you know, Andrew Clavin, um, you know, and figures like that, I'm, I'm, I'm just really humbled, actually, to be able to work with those people. So it's not so much that I'm super proud of what I've done as much as I am humbled by the opportunities to do it. Um, so I don't know. I, I'd have to think harder about that. I don't, I don't have too much time to think about what I've done. I've got to do the next thing. Have you spent a lot of time with David Horowitz? I'm supposed to get him on the show here soon. I, I really like all his work. Yeah, David is, um, I mean, he's, you know, he's getting older now. I think he's 84 and he's, but he's still a firebrand. I tell you, he still gets worked up when he starts talking about politics and fighting the left. Um, I have spent a lot of time with him. He's an inspirational character in some ways, you know, extraordinarily good writer. Um, and it's, it's inspiring because he's such a fighter. Uh, he really embraces that. And that, that's not something that comes naturally to me. Uh, that's something I've had to kind of uh, uh, adopt myself, you know, and take inspiration from to, uh, to kind of put myself out there and speak the truth. That's not something, I, I guess, you know, like Michael Jackson once said, you know, I'm a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> I think that's my real nature, but i you know, working with David Horowitz has turned me into a fighter. Absolutely, my friend. Well, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can get involved, all that good stuff. You know, I have almost no social media presence because I think social media is a net negative. And I've I agree with you, man. I yeah. agree with you. I, I got I got my Twitter suspended and I, de I deactivated my Facebook because they gave me like a 80 day ban on streaming my show. So wow. I'm sick of the censorship. I'm sick of these, you know what they call them, the masters of the universe because they control yeah. the internet, they control it all. Yeah, exactly. So I, instead I send people to my Substack account. Uh, Substack is kind of a writer's platform that's becoming popular. So if you go to marktapson.substack.com, you can follow you know, everything I'm doing there. Or you could go to substack.com and just search for Culture Warrior because that's that's me. That's what it's called. That's what my Substack page is called. Perfect, Mark. Well, I love talking to you, man. Let's get you back here soon, man. It's been a blast. It's been so fun. Keep Thank you. I, I hope I didn't bore people. You know, <laughs> I tend to ramble and you uh, you facilitate that, which is probably not a good thing, but uh, it's been fun. Yeah, Thanks keep running. Keep up the great work, man. And I love your rambling. You're always on point, man. Like I said, you have great insight 
And uh, I can't wait to see what uh, you you do in the near future and all these great projects that you have in store. Um, and we'll be we'll be in touch soon. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, man. Was, all right, man. Cheers. It was a blast. All right, take care. Uh, we'll, we'll be right back, everybody. Coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. This is Rory Sodder and the news. I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm excited to announce my new product, My Coffee. I get products all the time from entrepreneurs for my new platform, mystore.com. And when I tried my coffee for the first time, I was blown away. It is the best coffee I've ever had in my life. I spent the last four months doing my due diligence, and this family-owned business micromanages every step from the fields to the cup to ensure the best quality coffee you're ever going to have. It starts with the beans that are grown in Honduras. Honduras's volcanic soil and humid climate make the perfect growing conditions for coffee plants, which produce the best beans ever. Then each batch is tested for its aroma, taste, and other aspects to meet the highest standards in the coffee industry. And after that, it goes into production, which is all done right here in the USA. It's like you're getting that small batch specialty coffee, but delivered right to your front door. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use the promo code and you'll get your very own My Coffee for 25% off. You guys all know that I've traveled the country for the past year and a half. I've stayed in hundreds of hotels. I've tried every coffee out there. Well, some of the coffees have that terrible aftertaste, some that leave me jittery, or I get an upset stomach. Well, my coffee is different. It's the richest, smoothest, best coffee I've ever had. My coffee comes in a variety of flavors. You get them ground or whole bean, plus it's certified organic and non-GMO. I guarantee it'll be the best coffee you've ever had. So go to mystore.com or call the number on your screen. Use your promo code and you'll get my coffee for 25% off. And I'm going to give you deep discounts on all my store products. That's mystore.com. It's my new platform for USA entrepreneurs. Please order now. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan, he's back. The my pillow guy. And you're looking good. I'm still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever. My pillow 2.0. Wow, it's so soft and smooth. It's cool to the touch. How did you do that? Well, we took my pillow's patented bill and combined it with this new technology that we didn't have back then when I invented my pillow to bring you the best pillow in history, MyPillow 2.0. Just like all of you, I never imagined that MyPillow could get any better. That's why I haven't changed it in nearly 20 years. Then I heard about a revolutionary new technology and I knew I had to bring it to you all. MyPillow 2.0 is truly the next generation of MyPillow. The MyPillow 2.0 is cooler and softer than the last MyPillow. It is so comfortable to sleep on at night. I look forward to going to bed and I wake up well rested in the morning. Sleep is all about temperature and height. MyPillow 2.0's patented adjustable fill is gonna give you the exact individual support you need from your head to your bed. And now here's where it gets even better. We've all experienced those temperature-related sleep interruptions where you get too hot, you toss and turn, you flip your pillow over to the cool side, 
Well, all that's gone with my brand new MyPillow 2.0 cooling fabric that's made with temperature regulating thread. The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a MyPillow or not, you need to get the brand new MyPillow 2.0. Call or go to MyPillow.com now. Use your promo code, and for a limited time, when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. You're sleeping even better. And cooler, too. And you're looking good. Feeling good. I knew you would. Visit MyPillow.com. Just like that, a moment turns romantic. So why pause to take a pill? And when you're having fun, why stop to find a bathroom? With Cialis for daily use, you don't have to plan around either. It's the only daily tablet approved to treat erectile dysfunction, so you can be ready anytime the moment is right. Plus, Cialis treats the frustrating urinary symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently, day or night. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain or adempus for pulmonary hypertension, as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision, or any symptoms of an allergic reaction, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Why pause the moment? Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use. And for a $200 savings card, go to Cialis.com. And we are back. Rory Sauter in the news coming to you live from Palm Springs, California. My <clears> next guest, Stanley Ridgely, man. What's going on, buddy? Hey, how's it going, Rory? Good to see you. Good to be back here. Yeah, it's good to be back. Good to have you back, man. It's been about a year or so. Yeah. Uh, give us the update. Give us the 411. What's been going on? What have you been working on? And well, first of all, let me thank you. I really enjoyed your last guest, Mark Tapson. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazing guy. I was on his show. I was on his show, right? Uh, the right take, uh, the right stuff. Uh, about about uh, three or four months ago, and uh, he's a he's a he's a wonderful guy. Really accomplished guy. I knew, I knew that there was someone blocking my path to Hollywood and and make and throwing my scripts in the trash. And it's him. I'm gonna I'm gonna contact him about that. Maybe. I can get him to do uh, do a script, uh, you know, a screenplay for Brutal Minds, which is my latest book, as you know. Yeah. And we talked about Brutal Minds, I think, back when it was in its nascent stages a year ago. Yeah. And it, it was still, you know, just stating it was it was actually at the, at the publisher and we were, you know, rolling it out very slowly. And it, it launched in May. It launched May of this year, May 16th, and it's doing very well. And um, I thank you for having me on your show. I can talk about it uh, at length. Yeah. So, yeah. So how, give us the kind of the steps and the process and, oh. you know, the research and everything that, uh, you know, it took, uh, to write this book. And I, I can imagine, you know, it did, uh, there was a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of detail in it. Well, you know, it, you know, you read the book, you've seen it. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an Amazon. It was in the front of Barnes and Noble, uh, you know, in the new, the new nonfiction I, I checked by myself 
and I've done a lot of book signings, and um, <clears throat> very pleased at that reception. Uh, it actually made it into the University of Pennsylvania bookstore right up front. Yeah, yes, oh yes. It was. I, of course, I had to insist um, in a personal visit, which they and they complied very graciously. Um, but yeah, the book is um, the book is not something designed to endear me uh, to uh, the, the my liberal colleagues on the college campuses, uh, of which there are many, not college campuses, but liberals. And, you know, liberals outnumber conservatives by six to one ratio on the college campus. I still have yet to find those other conservatives that supposedly are here at my own campus. So, yeah, I um, researched this book. It wasn't going to be the book. This was not the book I was researching. I was researching neo-Marxism and its impact on American business. Kind of obvious, an obvious topic when you think about it. Um, <clears throat> the impacts of not Marxism, but the latest uh, inception of, of, of Marxism uh, by the Frankfurt School, the, the neo-Marxists. And there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them, believe it or not, in management. They call it critical management studies. Uh, and anytime you put the word critical in there, and anytime you put the word studies in there, you know you're dealing with probably a, a high fraud uh, of some sort because it, it does indeed involve uh, neo-Marxism under a new label, you know, they're massaging the message, that kind of thing. Um, and so I found that much more interesting, and this emerged from my research over the period of about uh, between five and six years, what emerged was this uh, manifestation of, 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 you know, of a bureaucratic um, edifice that was ensuring that the bureaucracies in America on the university campuses, uh, almost without exception, and certainly in the big state schools, certainly in the major uh, private schools, this bureaucracy that was increasingly uh, permeated with leftist crypto, literally crypto Maoist ideology. And I can give you the source of that. and I can tell you the outline of the bureaucracy. But one of the things that you talked about with uh, with Mark, um, the word conspiracy came up, the word conspiracy theory came up. And I've done a great deal of studying on you know conspiracy theories because I think this is really uh, a, a characteristic of much of what the left actually actually does um, in terms of um, the way they, when I say does, I mean that they criticize others for conspiracy theories when they themselves are the, the conspiracy theorists. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. One of the key markers for a conspiracy theorist, if, if you ask them questions, you challenge them with questions, show me the evidence, show me something, let's have a conversation about this. Conspiracy, you know, real live conspiracy theorists will accuse you of being part of their conspiracy because you're asking them the questions, you are being too demanding. They will say, you know, what do you got up your sleeve? Why are you so hostile? They are very hostile to uh, re requests for, to simple requests for evidence. The kind of thing that you and I find normal. You know, when someone says something that's kind of outlandish, you know, well, where's the evidence? Oh, you're a conspiracy. You're, you're, you're part of the conspiracy. Uh, and I get that a lot. I get that a lot from the left. And I've got that in print. I've got much of it in, in my book, Brutal Minds, about how they respond, they being the, the, the far left. Now, they being the far left, the extremist left, not my traditional liberal colleagues who are all quite, you know, quite, uh, uh, genteel and that sort of thing. I'm talking about these extremists and they outnumber on the college campuses, uh, liberals to conservatives, 12 to one. That The six to one ratio is for faculty, the 12 to one is in the bureaucracies. And I'll tell you how that comes about in a moment and what that relates to this idea of conspiracy. Uh, it comes, well, it comes about the, the, the first of all, the fact that it exists is substantiated by Samuel Abrams from Sarah Lawrence College in his research over the last two years in which he his, his national surveys found that there's this 
what we know to be the six to one ratio of liberals to conservatives on college campuses. The 12 to one ratio of the bureaucracy to uh, to uh, uh, of 12 to one to liberals to conservatives on the college campus strikes people as well. Wow. How did that come about? And so I begin to tell you, you know, how it came about. And, and, and if I were to tell you, I'm going to shift now to the conspiracy theory part uh, of how it's kind of interesting. If I were to tell you, uh, Rory, that, you know, you know what? The government is conspiring. There's, there is it's not conspiring, but the government is responsible for taking a certain percentage of your wealth. It's confiscating a percentage of your wealth out of your paycheck every month. And you didn't know anything at all about government or the IRS or anything like that. You would say, well, that's that's a conspiracy theory. That sounds conspiratorial. The government, the government's responsible for that. But you don't say that because you know the IRS. You know that there's an organization that's taking money out of your paycheck. You you know because you're getting, you know, it's transparent. You're getting a printout. You're you have to file the taxes every year. Uh, and so this whole process, this whole bureaucracy is quite open and transparent. And so you don't think that there's, hey, there's a conspiracy. On the other hand, when I tell you there's this 12 to 1 uh, disparity of liberals to conservative and extreme leftists to conservatives, and I say I'm going to describe the bureaucracy to you, so it's a conspiracy. Well, no, it's not. You are simply, I don't mean you, Rory, but most people are simply ignorant of the bureaucracy that is designed to achieve just that result. The bureaucracy is it's not hidden. It's right there, and all you have to do is understand how bureaucrats and bureaucracies work and how you have this triad, which I call Cerberus, which has got a three-headed dog. It's a three-headed dog with one, you know, with one body. And so you get this iron triangle of that comes that begins with the education schools. Uh, and the education schools are, are the bottom feeders of, of higher education. They're the, the least respected academic in, units in universities, bar none. Uh, that's a you know, studies have shown this for the last 50, 60 years, going all the way back to Abraham Flexner back in the 1920s and 30s, that education schools simply don't measure up. Why that is, is a different story altogether. But what we have to understand is that education schools have always been, the folks teaching in them have always been kind of upset that they haven't had, they don't have much more influence than they do on the college campuses. They solved this problem for them 20 years ago. They began creating in their graduate programs, advanced degree programs in things they call student affairs, educational leadership, higher education management. And you would graduate with a master's in higher education or a, an EDD like Jill, Jill Biden in uh, student affairs or uh, educational leadership, one of those vague amorphous terms. And you would graduate, you would not go into academia but you would go on to the university campus in the side door, not as faculty, but as a bureaucrat, as a bureaucrat. And you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, but don't these people only ensure that, uh, you know, the, the karaoke night takes place and that the pizza's hot and the sound system is, is working? Uh, well, no, they do a heck of a lot more. They do that and they make dorm room assignments and things like that. But if you had a higher education, I should say a master's in higher education, would you be happy? You know, you know, monitoring a karaoke night at the dorm. No, and they aren't either. They've got ambitions. They want to be known as college educators. That's their term, college educators. They want to be university people without the rigor and, and study necessary to become faculty. And so they design and run, and you can see this yourself by going on to most any college campus, they run what's called a co-curriculum, a co-curriculum. I teach in the curriculum. My colleagues in physics and chemistry and history and poli-sci they teach in the curriculum. These pazurs, these uh, mediocre uh, managers, 
in the bureaucracy. They teach in the co-curriculum. And it is permeated with the same Marxist, crypto-Maoist ideology that comes out of the education schools. Um, I can stop there if you'd like, and I'll I can continue. But I want to give you a chance, give you a chance to stop. No, no, this is good stuff. I'm li I'm listening. Okay. Stuff. Well, you know, if you say, well, why is it wrong? Why is it a bad thing? What's coming out of the education schools that is so bad? Well, if you look at education theory and who the leading lights are in the canon of education uh, schools, you'll find people like Henry Giroux, Iris Shore, Michael Apple, Paulo Freire. Why are these names important? You haven't heard of these names? All of them. To a man is a Marxist, a self-described Marxist, invested in uh, invested in collectivism, invested in the Marxist uh, cultural mantra, the idea of changing and transforming the university to make it uh, more along the lines of what Karl Marx envisioned, and certainly more along the lines of what Mao Zedong envisioned. The chief architect of our education schools theory is a fellow by the name of Paulo Freire. Now, James Lindsay, who was a very prominent guy um, uh, on, the, uh, on the right in terms of understanding critical race theory, understanding critical theory, and understanding the debilitating effect that Paulo Freire has had in education schools, you can read a lot of his stuff and it's fantastic stuff. Um, I've read a lot of Paulo Freire. In fact, I've, heck, I've got a lot of his books right here. I've got, you know, I'm looking at this one right here, Education for Critical Consciousness by, by Paulo Freire. And um, it's, it's crypto-Maoism. He was a Maoist. He was a Marxist Maoist. He had a great admiration for Mao Zedong's cultural revolution from 1966 to 1976, which killed about uh, 2 million of uh, its own citizens. Uh, that's all we know about. And they also tortured many people, destroyed the educational system in, in, um, in China, communist China. And Paulo Freire said this in 1974 in an article, uh, and I quote, Mao Zedong's uh, came up with the most genial solution of the century, his cultural revolution. He was talking about the problem of getting people to basically embrace uh, Maoist educational theory. And his, rather than shoot the peasants, as uh, Joseph Stalin advocated and Vladimir Lenin advocated, and as Fidel Castro actually did, um, we find that uh, Paulo Freire's idea was, well, we got to follow the teachings of of uh, Chairman Mao, and we're going to re-educate uh, the population. And so you've got this permeated, uh, this theory that's permeated the, the bureaucracy. And this is why we find that the bureaucracy is 12 to 1 left to right on college campuses, almost every college campus, even colleges like um, uh, Hillsdale or, uh, or uh, uh, Franciscanville of Steubenville, you know, Steubenville, I think it is, uh, College of the Ozarks. There's a little bit, we can find a little bit of this kind of penetration, although I think the uh, that Hillsdale has pretty much uh, ensured that that's not going to be their their primary uh, uh, thrust. So we have the third uh, pillar of the triangle, the third corner of the triangle, which is off-campus clubs and professional organizations. There are two that are most important. Um, one is the ACPA, or the American College Professionals uh, Association, Personnel Association, and then there's NASPA, the National Association of Student, Profession, uh, Student Professional uh, Association. They are the professional clubs. These are the, the um, I would say, the crucibles of the ideology. They are pure crypto-Maoist, far-left ideology that is the most extremist versions of critical race theory, critical pedagogy that you could possibly imagine. How do I know this? because I'm a member of both groups. 
I, I, you know, it's one of those things where you do primary research. I joined both groups. I subscribe to their journals. I read their journals. I see what they say. I look at what goes on at their conferences. And this is what I put in my book, Brutal Minds. It's not what I say or what I think about what they're doing. I let them speak for themselves and you can judge for yourself. So why, but why would these clubs be important? Well, they run institutes for, um, can you hear me or see, there we go. They run, they run uh, institutes uh, and, and uh, workshops for student affairs, affairs professionals around the country to learn how to impose what they call a curricular model, which means that they control, these are their words, they control the, the, the milieu management of the university where they can message students 24 seven in the dorms, in the dining halls, uh, in the hallways, in the classroom, everything outside the classroom they're going to control and they intentionally want to do this. They say this in the quotes appear in the book. We want to message the students, particularly freshmen, because they're frightened and they'll listen to us. We want to message them over and over and over again. They say this three times over and over and over again. The fellow who says this is Arthur Levine. He's an, a very famous educationist in this country. And so you say, well, that's all well and good, but is there anything else that these clubs do? Yes. And this is crucial to that circle of vice that I tell you about. These clubs are the, are the uh, folks who establish the education standards in schools of education. And that's their connection. You have these thoroughly there's these organizations that are thoroughly permeated with crypto Maoist doctrine that are now establishing the standards in the education schools for the folks who graduate from the advanced degree programs. And that's how the circle works. And that is why today we have a 12 to one left wing to um, uh, right wing, I guess, um, a disparity in ratio. And it's getting worse. And it, this comes, if you look at you know what I've just described to you, there's nothing mysterious about it. I think it's absolutely brilliant. If you're one of those, those folks, they have come up with a, a bureaucracy, a feeder system that reproduces itself. It strengthens itself. Uh, you're saying to yourself, well, perhaps, you know, aren't you being too tough on them? Aren't they really just, you know, aren't they honorable people? And aren't they just trying to hire people, you know, to, to do jobs on the campus that need to be done? Well, no, they absolutely want to exceed their mandate for what they're being hired to do been hired, you know, to keep the pizza hot, to, to make dorm room assignments, but they're also hired, well, they also want to teach because they fancy themselves being instructors. And so we find, and I've seen a personal experience with this, seeing uh, bureaucrats on the campus who are enrollment managers, who are advisors, and suddenly, suddenly I find that they're teaching students in a classroom in a required course where a grade is given, and they're completely unqualified to teach and no one is really in any academic department on my campus has approved them to teach anything in a classroom and yet this is going on and you're saying to yourself well why don't you do something about it well i am and that is being uh, something that is working its way through the uh, uh the interior you know mechanisms right now i'm going to find out i'm going to get to the bottom of this and we're going to put a stop to it if we possibly can so but that is the triangle and and it comes from kind of the, the marxist lewis althusser who wrote a very famous book his big thing was on how uh the institutions of capitalism reproduce themselves now they're set up to reproduce themselves well this is a very um uh, althusserian um way of uh, constructing a bureaucracy that, that it's going to definitely be 
reproducing itself and increasingly gaining control over the uh, university. I think it's hilarious that that good liberals on campuses around the country are pointing the finger at Ron DeSantis or pointing the finger at Greg Abbott or, you know, Virginia and Iowa as somehow threats to academic freedom when the enemy is already inside the wire right behind us. Uh, and they're they're going to attack. And there's a, many of them are doing it right now, attacking university faculties, um, academic freedom, telling faculty the types of curricula you're supposed to have, the types of devotion you're supposed to have to, say, DEI, and the types of uh, research projects that you can do to ensure that they are not uh, in uh, violation of the prescriptions that, say, the, the uh, DEI establishment on the campus has laid out for us. So that's basically the problem that is on the college campus. I lay all of this out. And going back to what I originally said to you, there's no conspiracy is needed. Just like the IRS, it's confiscating uh, the money out of your paycheck every month. Now you know the bureaucracies. The bureaucracies here, here, and here. And they are informing and placing people on the, the campuses to do exactly what I've said that they're actually to do exactly what they say that they're doing, in which I in which I lay all of it out in their own words. And it's uh, 24 pages of citations. And I should say, the book was twice as long as it is. It was at 180,000 words. It had over 856 footnotes. And uh, of course, you know, I had to I had to cut it for uh for, for financial reasons and for uh, readability reasons, because no one really wants to pick up a, a, a tome that's about, you know, 500 words, 500 pages long, but you will read something that's around 260 pages, I think. Very, very well said. Very well said. I mean, right, right, right on the money. I mean, that, that, that was perfect. I, I do have to ask you, how long did this take you to write? About a year? Yeah, I would say, um, well, this is the second, this is the second version. The first version was much longer, as I, as I mentioned to you, right. and certain publishers were a little sketchy about, about it because of the theme and because of its length. Right. It was more of an academic book as well, which publishers, publishers don't like the way we academics write. Okay. They just don't like that. You know, I'm going right. to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to tell you what it's told you. And then I'm going to footnote all of it so that there's no doubt. Uh, in your mind. When you do that, the book tends to get out of control. And so that book that got out of control was uh, was shopped around by my agent. And uh, one publisher said, you know what, this is really good stuff. If you would come back to us with a book that does X, Y, and Z, we'll have a really hard, you know, good look at that. I quickly, quickly modified what I was doing to accomplish A, B, and C, as the publisher asked. And um, they said, this is great. And the rest is, is his history. They said, we love this book and we're going to go ahead and, and, and run with it. And um, the publisher was very good to me and, and really gave me great editorial support along with my mainline editor. My frontline editor was my, my wife, Lori. And uh, not a word gets out of this house without her approving it. And uh, she's really, really sharp. And, um, and I really thank her. I thank her in the book, of course, um, for, for the work that she put in it. But yeah, it was a lot of work. Uh, I enjoy it, though. I mean, this is one of those things where if you find out what you do, you enjoy what you do, right, Rory? And, and I'm enjoying what I do. I teach. Yeah. I, uh, I write. And I mean, what could be better than that? Right? I know. You know, it's it's all about loving what you do. And when you were writing this book, how often did you have to go back on the on the computer and, and delete and then rewrite? I mean, did, did you have to deal with that experience? I know a lot of writers, you know, they want it, they want it to be as perfect as possible. You know, and they're 
there can be slip ups, you know, there's writer's block, but your take on that. Well, I'll tell you that you have to, if you're going to be a writer and you have to write every day and you have to write it usually at the same time. And, and uh, so my, my um, dictum has been to write every morning, at least 300 words. And that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but whenever you're writing 300 words, you know, just start writing. Um, it usually goes on a lot longer and a lot more than that. So you really have to cut it off at some point. And if you look, you know, after 10 days, you've got at least 3000 words. Right. And if you go through a month, you've got at least 9000 words and pretty soon you've got a book. But of course, the writing goes on and on. And if you hit a roadblock, I would advise young writer, if you hit a roadblock, put this aside and then write something else. Write what strikes your fancy. Don't put it aside to do later because you'll forget. So you basically put this thing on hold and move to the next one. But you got to kind of start with a framework of chapters. Here's the story that I want to tell. And I found it's I thought that it would be easier to cut than it would be to add. I mean, it kind of makes sense. If you're if you're a serious writer, it's really a long time to add something. But it was really hard to cut. It's really hard to cut, especially if you're trying to tell a comprehensive story. Um, a third party, your editor can tell you, well, you know what? You don't need pages you know, 59 to, to 87. You really don't put that in your next book. And so, you know, you look at that, and you go, well, you know, I guess you're right. I, I really don't need that in there. I kind of try to tell myself that. So, uh, so yeah, there's a, there was, um, I had to add some things. I was constantly adding as events occurred. Yeah. Now, when I say events occurring, I don't mean really the kinds of the horror stories that you see. There's some really fine books out there. Charlie Kirk's book has got some really good stories in it. Uh, David Horowitz's book have always got good stuff in it. I've known David uh, since uh, 19, around 1994, 95. And I used to, wow. Yeah, I used to bring him to speak some of my conferences, and when it only cost me five hundred dollars to do it, of course that, that those days are long gone. And I asked him, I asked, I said, David, you know, most most uh, young people, you know, rebel against their parents' beliefs. I mean, you know, your your parents were both card carrying communists. I mean, they were. He was a red diaper baby. I said, I thought you, you know, why didn't you revolt? And he said, Well, you know, Stan, I I did. I became a socialist. I know that was his idea of rebellion against the, the, the communists that had had raised them. They were they were so ashamed of him because he became a socialist instead of a instead of a, this card carrying communist. And so, you know, when writing, I, I get a good uh, there are these folks that write good books like David and like Charlie Kirk wrote a really good book. And um, and James Lindsay have written some fine, fine works on uh, they're kind of technical and, 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 and academic. And I don't find that off putting. Uh, but, uh, but you have to be warned about that. I mean, but he re, you know, if you really want to understand critical theory, critical pedagogy, critical race theory, and what's wrong with it, he will tell you. And I will t I tell you as, uh, as much as I can as, as well, because it, it does play into uh, what I say in here. I'm going to show you the, the, uh, the again, the, the subtitles, The Dark World of Left-Wing Brainwashing in Our Universities. Right. Now, well, you know, it's one of those things where People say, well, the, the title's kind of off-putting. You know, that word brainwashing kind of raises eyebrows. I say, well, it should. It should because I mean that quite literally. The, if you want to look at the technical term, I mean, it appears in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Edition 5, uh, for mental disorders. It, it, brainwashing appears in there. And folks who do brainwashing can damage the psyche of people who undergo that kind of program. They, they, it tells you how to diagnose it. So it's not really something that is that is uh, coming out of uh, coming out of left field, no, no pun intended. But if you want to look at the real word, words for it, you know, the formal word, thought reform. And thought reform has been around a long time. If you're looking for a founder, 
of brainwashing or thought reform, that person would be uh, a MIT social scientist by the name of social psychologist, I should say. In the late 1940s, um, his name was Kurt Lewin. Kurt Lewin. And he is the guy who coined the term re-education. Now, you know as well as I do, that word has gotten a really bad rap, justifiably so. And the left used to utilize this all the way up to around the 1990s, when they finally got wise to maybe we shouldn't call what we do re-education. So they changed the name to transformative education. And so, kind of, oh, ooh, ooh, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Oh, wow. It's, it's not real. It's transformative education. Who could be against that? Well, it's the same stuff. It's the same brainwashing program. They're just calling it something different. Um, what was Kurt Lewin all about? Well, he came up with a program that he wanted to direct against uh, criminality. He wanted to change the belief system of hardened criminals by utilizing a three-step program, three stages, uh, unfreezing the belief system, um, changing that belief system, and then refreezing the new belief system, right? And, and, and they would do this in a group setting, and, and it, it was an encounter group. He created the encounter group. Kurt Lewin, if you look it up, he is known as the father of the encounter group, because we know about the 1960s and the encounter group movement, movement the T groups or training groups. And the communist Chinese were very fascinated with this kind of, this kind of education or re-education, and they developed their own techniques. But we find that in communist China, they don't have those pesky individual rights. So they could kind of skip a stage and kind of go to the coercion, the coercive aspects of it. We in the United States have those pesky individual rights. And so what we find in our version, I say our, I mean in the West, it's uh, it adds a step at the beginning that is deceptive. Uh, there's a lot of deception. And there's only two places in America where brainwashing is actually practiced to any great extent. That is over here with American style cults, C-U-L-T-S, and the American college campus, right? And almost 100% of this is occurring on the left. And the techniques that are used are almost identical. Um, the unfreezing, changing the belief system, and refreezing. Sometimes the labels are changed. But if you look in books like this one right here, because, you, know, you know, Rory can become a brainwasher too. You can learn how to do so right here in a book called Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice. Um, you can go to, to chapter four of uh, this, and you can learn how to, to uh, brainwash your students and how to set up an effective brainwash. It incorporates this prior stage of what is, you know, was deception, uh, where um, students are put at their ease. They're told, and they're told quite explicitly, you know, oh, you need to model trust. I'm going to model trust for you. I'm going to model vulnerability. We want to create an atmosphere where you can feel free to disclose some of your secrets, to disclose what motivates you, to, to disclose, oh, oh, you know, information about your family, about your friends, about your parents. And they try to create this atmosphere of faux trust. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime someone is trying to tell me, oh, you need to trust me. You need to, you need to disclose something. I'm going to model that by telling you something that's kind of meaningless. But now your, your turn. I would be very suspicious. But now freshmen, college students are probably not going to be suspicious, particularly as the brainwashers or the thought reformers in student affairs and the bureaucracy, they engage in activities that they call games and orientation. Now, I'm not talking about cornhole competition or, you know, 
ultimate frisbee competition. I'm not talking about that kind of game. I'm talking about interrogation games. I'm talking about revelation games. And I'll give you an example of one of them. It's called the privilege walk. Have you ever heard of the privilege walk? It is practiced universally on college campuses nationwide. Um, maybe not this year, this, but next year we'll do it. We did it last year. Maybe we'll do it again next year. Oh, it's very fit. You can go online and type in privilege walk rules and find out. You can find, you can download the uh, um, PDF yourself and learn how to run the privilege walk. And here are the rules. I get a group of students together, preferably freshmen. You come, in, no, you come into a darkened room, big room, and you stand. they stand in a row holding hands. This is what the, this is what the instruction is, holding hands, kind of mysterious, right? Now, they're told, when I ask a question and your answer is yes, you have to step forward. And if the answer is no, you step backwards. And so they ask a whole series of leading questions that were based really on um, uh, Peggy McIntosh's 1988 Invisible Knapsack uh, article about privilege, unpacking white privilege, okay? So what the, these questions are designed explicitly, they're leading questions designed to illustrate that certain people have privilege by virtue of this or that, and some people do not. And at the end of the questions, you'll have a visual model of the people with privilege, in the different stages of privilege, or of uh, people all the way at the back who have oh they have, they have, they have no privilege, um, and that's that's the privilege walk. That's a game. Now you can see that how if you couch something like this in a game, it's an interrogation game. If you if I were to hand you a form and ask you okay Roy I want you to I want you to fill out this and answer it honestly you know answer these questions reveal you know reveal information about your parents uh, what your parents do you know, what your income is, uh, what, what kind of activities, you, who your friends are, what they do. You'd say, what the heck is this? I'm not answering these questions. None of your business. But if you are engaged in a privilege walk and it's all, oh, it's fun, you know, we're holding hands, my gosh, we're young, and we're creating an atmosphere of trust, you'll answer those questions. And believe me, the answers to those questions, if you're determined to have privilege, and you will be, because that's what the questions are made to do, they're designed to do that. Well, you have just revealed this to everyone and uh, they will be used against you. That information is now going to be used against you. I should say that it's quasi-legal to do this type of interrogation. If that information appears in a subsequent article, well, those people who have conducted that uh, have, have made it legally actionable to take some sort of, um, to some sort of action against them. Um, I'm looking at my chops. Well, if I find out about something like that, if someone tries to do something like that to me, if I find out that something like that has been done to students without informed consent, um, then we're going to we're going to find out exactly how deep this thing goes. And we're going to string this all the way out for the uh, adjudication process. How can I do that? Well, I'm on the IRB, the, the Institutional Review Board that reviews social science experiments to ensure that they are in consonance with the common rule and the uh, Office of Human Research Protections. Are you authorized to do this? Have the students been given the opportunity to give informed consent? And if they have not, well, then you're in trouble. And so this is an example of the idea of the brainwash and you know, prepping students for the for what's to come. Uh, Rory can uh, move on into the unfreezing stage, changing the belief stage, and then finally the refreezing stage. Let me quote to you. We got we got about we got about one minute left, Stanley. But go go ahead. I'm going to quote I'm going to quote the juice of it, or the, give you the grist of it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 
At the end of the process, with Rory's brainwashing process, a new set of beliefs becomes home base for interpreting experience and creating meaning. The past is reinterpreted and reconstructed into a new frame of reference. There's a sense of betrayal by those who were supposed to tell them the truth about the social world, i.e. parents. Dude, I, dude, I love it, man. You're, you, you, you've got this all locked down, man. I mean, well, I hope. I mean, I could, I could listen to you for hours and hours. I mean, was there other things that you wanted to, to mention or did you pretty much say it all? Well, I, I, I lay it all out in the book and it is something that I'm, you know, feel very strongly about. And um, you can go to my website, brutalminds.com, where most of my writings and a lot of the peripheral and preparatory material I've had, in, you know, a number of publications. And I would also suggest that you can, uh, well, you can, Get the book, an audible version. I, it's me talking for seven hours, and I don't know if no, I don't know of anyone who really enjoys that. Not even my wife. Um, but you can also get the Kindle version as well on Amazon. But um, but yeah, I I, I I firmly believe that this book can do a lot of good, right. and I hope that people benefit from it. Amen. Well, let's get you back here very soon, man, and have a great weekend. Thank you, Stanley. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate it. Amen. Amen. God bless. Uh, Everybody, it's been a fantastic show today. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Another episode of Rory Sodder and the news in the books. I will see you all next week. Until then, I'm Rory Sodder. God bless. Much love. Cheers, everybody.